podcast this week, we have another sensational hat trick of guests. We Terratron, the documentary legend Errol Morris, director of the John Le Carre documentary. <laughs> like that every time. The Pigeon Tunnel. Plus, we ask Garth Davis, director of Foe, whether he is friend or foe. Hopefully more friend. Mm. And we bring you the long-awaited live show interview with Richard Armitage, author of Geneva. All that, plus usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that has a sore foot, two gammy knees, a cold that won't quit, and can't turn its head to the left or the right because of a cricked neck. (laughs) So if this is to be my last podcast, tell your wife I love her. There is another (laughs) huge... Oh God, I am going to cough. Oh God, I hope not. Cut this bit out, Chris. Seamless cut later. Totally fine. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. I'm joined in the studio for what may be my last <laughs> podcast by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. And if I am to go out, I'm glad I'm going out by the two people that I have met the most. Geek Queen <laughs> Helen O'Hara. Thanks so much. It's uh, so warm. Obviously an old twist on... Yes. I've come to regard you as people, people I've met. met yes. Red Dwarf. Red, Red Dwarf. Dwarf. Indeed. Mm. Indeed. Can you name the episode? Yes. <laughs> and that is, of course, Hollow Ship, which was precisely what I was about to say. I know. I, I was. I is, meant, and this is, of course, James Dyer. Oh, th- yes. This is James Dyer, our very own Crichton slash Rimmer. Uh, <laughs> I do like to think I embody the best of both of those characters. I think you well. Best is such a strong word. Up to negotiation, isn't it? it really is. <laughs> yes. I've uh, never seen one before. No one has, but I'm guessing it's a white hole. That's a very good Chris Barry. <laughs> the, the, yes. Do you remember when I did that impression to Chris yes. Barry, and then he proceeded to uh, do a better wipe one. the floor yes. with me <laughs> and by doing impressions of all the members of the crew? That's a genuinely good. Is it good at Crichton though? Uh, anyway, James Dyer is here. Do you know what? I think I genuinely think, yes. I think I think one of the, the, the big flaws in my personality comes from the fact that when I was a teenager, I used to go to sleep watching Red Dwarf and Black Adder. I would put them on on my little TV in my room and then go to sleep watching them. Uh, and so I think that Rimmer and Black Adder and Basil Fawlty have all seeped into my psyche, and that explains a that lot. That would explain a lot, yes. Yeah. Helen, do you do any Red Dwarf impressions? I do not, thank you. Okay. Should we move on? Please. How are you both? Yeah, you know, I'm good, good. I'm going yeah. to Kerry tomorrow to the Kerry International Film Festival, which, as you listen to this, I will have been to, and it will have been wonderful, I'm sure. <laughs> it will have been a great, huge success. Yeah. Huge, enormous. Uh, who I've... said no that day turned to you? <laughs> Me. I, I, I assume literally everyone. I assume you both said no, yeah. and uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. I get to get a nice little weekend in Killarney, get to have we wander you guess, To get to kiss the Blarney Stone. That's actually closer over to Cork. Ah, Jesus. No. no. It's, a, it's a literal sco- sto- stone that people hang over the back of a castle. Like, I, I would not do it. Out the back of a castle yeah. in and, order to kiss. kiss. Is, is this what passes for fun in Northern Ireland? No, it's, it's what it, well, passes COVID it's, in Northern Ireland. <laughs> first it's not of all, Ireland. It's in the south of Ireland. Ah, it's not in the okay. Northern Ireland. Yeah. Uh, and second of all, it's um, it was closed on, I believe, during COVID because they were worried about, you know, Contamination via stone. Uh, Jesus, Karen got to COVID something here and kissing the Blarney Stones we did. But he could talk for a fucking... Not better than me, that's for sure. And that's the idea, that kissing the Blarney Stone gives you the gift of the gab. Gives right. it the gab. I see, I see. Well, that's that's nice. I for one, And also long-term pneumonia. Indeed. Well, I'm not going to carry, but I for one, I'm very excited to be in this confined space with fucking Typhoid Mary over here. Yeah. So that's, hey, uh, everybody. Good. Hey, how's it it's going? I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to the inevitable disease. I'm the living embodiment of the Blarney Stone. <laughs> Living embodiment of the influenza virus. Yeah, man.
All right, so I don't want to turn the listener question. Like, for a while, it became the Mount Rushmore segment. Yeah. and uh-huh. I don't want to turn the listener question oh, section gosh. into name films in chronological order. But you're going to. But, going but I'm going to. to one last time. Right. And it's not going to be the MCU. Because how could we do the MCU in chronological order in this week of all weeks? Out of respect and sheer deference to Sir Martin of Scorsese, mm-hmm. we should not be doing that. Because otherwise you'd hear like a high-pitched whirring noise and then he would come barrelly through that door going, what the fuck? What the fuck? I mean, that'd be a great way to get him into the studio for a chat. It would be. Sit yeah. down, Martin. <laughs> but also um, in this week where we celebrate, the, or celebrate, where we mark, where we commemorate oh. the all too oh. recent death. Tony! Of one Anthony Stark, who just died like this week. Just died this week. October 17th, yes. 2023. Proof he had a heart. Oh. Poor fella. Poor fella. Yes, apparently someone worked out. And yes, if you're a Spider Special subscriber, I've kind of talked about this already on our Loki Season 2, Episode 2, Spider Special. Um, but if you haven't, then here's a little bit of extra free content. Uh, yes, apparently someone worked out that this week, the 17th of October, was the day that, uh, that the Battle of Earth takes place in Avengers Endgame. And therefore is the day that Tony Stark becomes Tony Kark. Oof. Too soon? Too well, soon. Too soon. It's only three days ago, for yeah, God's sake. Literally, come on. Come man. on, man. Come on. He's barely cold. Uh, they turned him into cheeseburgers, if, if I'm right oh, in thinking. I think that's. No. Yeah, 3,000 cheeseburgers, wasn't that right? Ouch. I love you, 3,000 cheeseburgers. Oh. Uh, and so he uh, he's he's passed. He's passed. Now, this led to a very interesting conversation in the Spoiler Special. I'm going to ask you guys this as a sub question. Okay. Then we're going to go to the main listener question, oh. and you'll see why in a second. Tony dies. Sure. October 17th, 2023. When does Natasha Romanoff die? It's like the same day, isn't it? No, it depends how long it took them to do all the timey wine. Well, nothing, no time at all, because they presumably appeared back the second that they departed, because that's how time that's that true, works. It's the same they day. do, they yeah. do, yeah, yeah. So the same day? No. Uh, uh, yes. Depending on. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. What, because yes. it gets yes. dark yes. in between? Yes. yes. No. Then what? Natasha Romanoff dies in the year 2014. I mean, yes, but also ah, no. I mean... What, what is it? Is it, though? Is it, though? Does it? Is it? Do you? Isn't it? Was it? I mean, what do you say, though? What do you think? What do you think? I mean, her life came to an end in 2023. I did it, though. And also in 2014. Schrodinger's death. She's no. no. I don't understand the concept of Schrodinger, to be honest. He's alive or dead or something. Apparently, the the whole cat thing was a joke that he made to make fun of people making fun of, um, like, who were getting caught up in that concept. And now it's become, like, a millstone. Like the Bechdel test. That he's known for. Yeah. 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 Like, the Bechdel test wasn't conceived as a serious test, and now it it is a serious test. And Alison Bechdel's like, not a serious test, guys. (laughs) Not a serious test. But, you know, everyone uses it now. You could say she dies on. October 17th, 2023, mm. but also in a very real sense. date in a very real no. sense in 2014 mm. on Formir. By the way, if you haven't seen the second biggest move of all time, Avengers Endgame, spoilers for two of the major characters, hmm. but I like to think we've enough time has passed. I, I, well, yeah, two days apparently. So it's just... <laughs> Two days, two days. Barely cold, Chris, barely cold. Anyway, now that we're six hours into the podcast, shall we have the question? Uh, are we six hours in the podcast or are we three minutes in the podcast? I've been here travel? since 2014. So. 
the question. This uh, someone slid into my DMs this morning uh, with a very, very good question that tickled me immensely. Oh, I went, no. I went, oh, 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 this is going to be a lot of fun. I immediately dislike it. It comes from Paul Homer. That's Paul I know Homer. Who to blame. Okay. On Twitter, he says, "Hey, question for the pod this week. Good start <sighs> with the release of Marty's new movie. That's Sir Marty to you." Can you guys name all his directed films in chronological order? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. No, that's that's fine. Well, uh, d- does it start with Mean Streets? I'll give you. I'll give you two. To, I'll give you two to start. Okay. Yeah, because it was the Corman. Yeah. One. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there's Boxcar Bertha. Yes. And then. Alice doesn't live here anymore. That comes after. Does it? Hang yeah. on a second. I'm really confused now. Oh, who's that knocking at my door? Okay. All right. And so no is the answer. Then Main Street. Okay. All right. And then Alice doesn't live here anymore. And then Taxi Driver? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. And then Raging Bull? Oh. Raging no, have I left something out? Probably. It's definitely after Taxi Driver, but this feels like there's probably something in between. Was it New York, New York? Yes. Wasn't that after? No, it was, it was before. That, um, no, that was after Taxi Driver. And it's before... Yeah, I know it's after Taxi yeah, Driver. But it's before it, Raging Bull. It's before okay. Raging Bull, yes. So New York, New York, and then Raging Bull. And then King of Comedy? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you have Who's It Knocking At My Door? Yeah. yeah. And then Boxcar Bertha. Yeah. Then Mean Streets, uh-huh. 1973. Then Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, 74. Taxi Driver, 76. Good mm-hmm. year. Mm. Then it's New York, New York, mm-hmm. 77. Yep. Um, I, I'm going to leave out concert films and I mean, documentaries. Last and Waltz what, uh, Last is a Waltz. big one. But yeah, like, it's a big one. But yeah, yeah. let's leave it out. Just let's focus feature, on feature. theatrical yeah. narrative films and only the films. We're going to leave out things like New York stories as well. So you don't, okay. have, to, you don't have to worry about that. So, okay. so I'll, I'll give you New York, New York. And then what comes after New York, New York? Didn't we just say? Yeah, we just said. Raging Bull? Raging yes. Bull. Okay, yeah. after Raging Bull. And then Helen said King of Comedy. King Correct. Of comedy? Then Color of Money? No, but no. you're close. You're close. You're in the right decade. Well, obviously we're in the right... <laughs> thanks. I mean, Cundin is in that decade, but it's afterwards. That's later. Uh, Cundin is... Cundin's 90s. 90s. Mm-hmm. I shot in cinema. Oh, yeah, you're right. uh, it's an original film. It just got re-released over, well, over here on the Criterion Collection, or is about to be. Okay. One of the two... <laughs> it's either it's either released or it's like Shortinger's Blu-ray. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, and it is a New York story set in New York. Oh, because he never does many of those. <laughs> Starring, if I say, you might get it, Griffin Dunn. Uh, oh, fuck. And Rosanna Arquette. Yeah, yeah. I'm having a blank. After Hours? Yes, After, after hours. hours. I thought that was 90s for some reason. Okay. No, 85. All right. and then, so After Hours and then The Colour of Money. Then The Colour of Money. Right. And then what comes after The Colour of Money? The Jesus Film. The Jesus Film, which the is Jesus called... Film. The Jimbo. Last Temptation the, of Christ. Last, the, um, the Jesus Strikes Back. Jesus Strikes Back, absolutely. Uh, then he does direct one segment of New York Stories in 1989. Uh, but that's the that's the eighties done with, and then in the nineties, the pizza film, fellas, the pizza film, yes. yes, absolutely, it's a deep dish on that one. <laughs> wow! Uh, so he does that, yes. and then, then after the, that, the Cape Fear, yes, Jimbo, Ooh, Cape Fear, he's cooking my gas now. He is cooking my gas now, Ooh. like they do at Goodfellas. Yeah, I do. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so after Cape Fear, is it Age of Innocence or Condon at that point? 
Age of Innocence. Oh, I shouldn't have given it away. I went, oh, that's a good one. Yes, Age of Innocence. Age of Innocence. Is it Kundan next? It's not Kundan Damn next. it. Ooh. Casino. Casino. Bollocks, of course it is. Casino. Fuck bollocks, of course it is. <laughs> sounds, like a, sounds like a Joe Pesci line from that yeah. very movie. I don't know why we're so obsessed with Kundan. Maybe I love Kundan. I'm the only person alive who enjoys Kundan. I think Marty Scorsese enjoys Kundan as well. Probably less than I do. Possibly. He's, yeah. he's quite hard on his own films. I went to that screen talk he did during the LFF. And he was just shit. Well, he, shit. He, no, he didn't say that. Like he was, he was actually he watched some of the the clips that Edgar Edgar Wright was doing the interviews, and, and Edgar show, played some of his clips, and he, he visibly enjoyed watching clips of his own films. What do you mean he visibly enjoyed watching some of his films? Have you heard of facial expressions? They sometimes give away joy. Ah, uh, no, I've heard, heard rumours about yeah. this. I only look at the crotch. <laughs> you only look at the crotch. Wow. Okay, well, just try, try looking above the neck. Try and aim time. higher. Yeah, yeah, a little bit higher. I can't. I've got my fucking neck problems. So anyway, so he was having a good time looking at, at you know, watching those clips and, and you know, enjoying clearly reliving those moments, but also. You know, was kind of writing off some of his films as a little bit as he went, not like in what? a sort of, not in a sort of, oh, that was shit, I hate it, but just in, his, in the sense of maybe he felt like some of them were compromised or not quite what he had in his head. Like, or, which ones? Um, he was like Rage of Bull. We forgot to shoot it in color. <laughs> <laughs> no, just weird ones. He was kind of like a little bit quiet about. So I think some of his studio stuff, basically, and some of those, some of those early noughties ones he did with, well, we'll get to them, with DiCaprio. Right. I kind of I think he felt like well everything was there ready to go so we just went and made it but maybe it wasn't the one where his heart was really passionate about. Like Gangs you know? of New York perhaps. Gangs of like New York Gangs perhaps York. and well okay well somebody has to I suppose but um <laughs> but Gangs of New York was one I definitely felt that way about and a bit about the aviator like as well. I find it interesting. This has happened to me a few times over the years where you will interview someone and you worship their films or you worship a film in particular and then you start talking to them about it and it becomes abundantly clear within seconds <laughs> yeah. they don't share your yes. affection for that film yeah. that for whatever reason maybe the film for them was uh, a flop or they had a bad time making it or there could have been like personal life things going Precisely. on in the background you know you never know yep. with people so um so like and, and like i said i'm not saying he was he wasn't throwing anybody on the bus he wasn't like he wasn't saying anything was was bad or wrong or, but it just it felt like there was a little bit less warmth and a bit less maybe personal investment in some of the films than some of the others. That's just my reading of it. I haven't, I haven't talked to anybody else about it. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, uh, two, two examples of that, just real quick. Uh, Last Boy Scout. Pretty much oh, yeah. everybody I've interviewed about The Last Boy Scout over which the years. Love. Yeah, which you love. Which is, we both love. Which we both love. But I've interviewed like all the principals from that movie, as in uh, Bruce Willis, Shane Black, yeah. who wrote it, Tony Scott, who directed it, and Joel Silver, who produced it. And all of them were cold on it to a different degree. And you can see why Shane Black's screenplay was effectively taken off him. He'd give it a one on his finger scale. (laughs) He very much would. Uh, And Bruce Willis, for him, I don't think, you know, at the time it wasn't... I think he was surprised that there were people who love it. Mm. You know, it's one of those things. Like Nick, I remember Nick interviewing Steve Martin and raving to Steve Martin about the man with two brains. And Steve Martin just going... But it's very rare movie. for me to say this, but I agree entirely with Steve Martin. No, oh, Doctor Horror. <laughs> oh my God! Annie it's his funniest film. It's oh his funniest God. film. No, it's it's a, it's a work of staggering genius, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and but because it had flopped and because it wasn't well received critically, he had written it off. Mm. For him, it was no cheaper by the dozen too. Uh, but <laughs> oh no! Well, let's, let's not be overly harsh. <laughs> You know, at least that movie put bums in seats. I suppose. Whereas all this did was put brains in jars. And then cook their nines. 
But um, yeah, so it can, it can happen now and again where you're like, I love your movie. And they go, you're a piece of shit. Yeah. I remember saying to uh, Michelle Rodriguez on set of Widows that uh, I was a big fan of the Fast and Furious films and as, as were many in our office. And she she kind of double took and went, what, really? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, but but ironically, Michelle. <laughs> I, I didn't maybe make that clear. But. Yeah, you did say, we, we think the Fast Five was the pinnacle of human achievement, Michelle. I, I mean, I do, as you know. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, and it is what it is. Anyway, Kundun. Kundun. Little movie about the boy. Uh, and then he follows it up in 1999 mm. with... Oh, 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 oh. Um, Bringing Out the Yes, that's the one. I have to say Jimbo's doing particularly doing well in this. I mean, he's not getting any of the I names right. Name, but, <laughs> I, just, I had the image of the film. Yeah. I just couldn't think what it was called. But he's slapping his head and he's in the general vicinity, which <laughs> yeah. is... Which is more which than is you can normally expect from me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, the thing, the film, the film. The film. You know the one, you know the one. Yeah. Nicholas Cage is in it. He's That's driving it. an ambulance. He's bringing out the den in it, but I can't remember the it's, name. It's ambulance. Yeah, ambulance. <laughs> Mr. Ambulance Driver. Is that I what it is? I think it was called The Bus That Couldn't Slow Down. The ambulance That Couldn't Slow Down, surely. Uh, 2002. Is this Gangs of New York? No. It is Gangs of New York. It is Gangs of New York. Okay, so now I, we're I in the Leo years. I the premiere of that and spoke to Marty and Leo. Are, Did you? Are we yes. calling him Marty? Are we, we are calling him Well, when you're close personal friends with him like I am. Mm. Yes. Although I suspect we're going to fall out later in this podcast, but I let's see what happens. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, Mr. Scorsese. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so we're in the Marty years. So we've got Gangs of New York. So does that mean The Aviator is next? Yes. It does mean The it Aviator does. is next. And does that mean Shutter Island? Departed? It does not. Departed. The Departed. Yes. The Departed. The Departed. The Departed. Yes. And I'm afraid Helen, I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. <laughs> Best line in a movie full of amazing lines. All right, so the, the departed. Departed. The departed. Uh, packs its car on the best ass car yeah. uh, slot in 2006. Uh, it's followed up in 2008. I'll give you this one. Shine Shutter. a light. Shutter. Shine a light. Oh. The Rolling Stones movie. Yeah, that didn't that. that doesn't count. Yeah, no, we're not skipping it's it. The, it's the one that Helen said. It's Shutter Island. It, it is yeah. Shutter Island. Yeah. yeah. yeah 2010. It's good. Well, Dennis Lane. It is, yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're up to Shutter Island, and then what's next? Is it? We don't go, st- no, we've got a, mm, there's more Marty. There's I'll tell you Marty what, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you yeah. what's next. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's in terms, it's a tonal shift. The same tonal way, shift. Same way the casino into Kundun uh, was a tonal Silence. shift. Oh, is it oh, Silence? Uh, really? Is it Hugo? It's Hugo. It is oh, Hugo. Hugo. Yes. Oh, yeah. Hugo, the movie uh, on which I met Mr. Marty. I did an interview with him for that as well. There you go. He I, was delightful. I hosted the press conference for that film over here, and I got to, I got to address him as Mr. Scorsese. Quite right. Of course, this was really at a time when the MCU was only in his infancy, <laughs> uh, but I still managed to say to him, Mr. Scorsese, what did you think of Iron Man 2? <laughs> That was my opening question. And he said, sure it was, yeah. it's not as good as Iron Man 1, but I hear Iron Man 3 is going to be brilliant. I hear Iron Man 3 is going to be indisputably the best of the lot. <laughs> uh, 2013, he becomes less prolific at this point. He's been pretty yeah. prolific yeah. Yeah, he's been doing at this point. He slows down. He does slow down. Because there were a lot of Marvel movies to watch. So. <laughs> <laughs> and they keep making them. <laughs> <laughs> Are there really movies though? Do they count as movies? And you got to go back and watch them all. Like once you get to, you know, yeah, a lot of rewatching that. Yeah, yeah, once you get to Guardians three, you've got to mm. go back. Oh, what happened to Guardians one? You got to go back and rewatch that. We and may you, be getting off slightly off track. You, you realize that the opening of Guardians one is the, it takes place the same day that Natasha Romanoff dies, mm. and then you, or and does then, it? Or does it? Yes, it does. And and then you you know you have to take a few minutes to compose yourself, don't mm. you? So anyway, yes, 2013. What's next? 
2013. It's another. Is it silence? No, it's not yet. So no. it's, it's Wolf of Wall Street, silence, um, and uh, the last two. Yes, the Irishman and the Irishman and, and this, this one. Terminably that's, long. That's the most yes. recent four, but we're not up to. Okay, Wolf we're not of there Wall yet. Street yet. We're not yeah, there yet. So if yeah. not Wolf of Wall Street, what was the one before Wolf of Wall Street? Well, that's what I'm asking you. Well, I don't know. Well, I'm asking you. Well, I have this is the, the shittest who's on first I've ever seen. <laughs> Uh, and by the way, you're both wrong. It was the Wolf of Wall Street. Oh! 2013. So, yeah, 2013. Yeah. So that means 10 years ago. Then we've got them all. I feel Margot so Margot Robbie has been in the general pop culture consciousness for 10 years. That is amazing. Wow. 10 years. The Marty Ten Cinematic years, Universe. Man. The Marty Cinematic Universe. The only MCU that anyone needs to bother themselves about. All right. Well, okay. So definitely next week. No. No list. No listing. Beg you. No listing questions. Uh, no listing films. No, none of that. None of that nonsense, please. Otherwise, they will kick off the subreddit. James, are you on the subreddit? What, what's happening? In the they've, subreddit? Ma- they've made me like like their leader. <laughs> <laughs> Ill-advisedly, no, they haven't. It's a cargo cult. It is. It is. They made me a moderator of the subreddit. I've been oh, made a moderator, boy. so I have like a little moderator's badge. The power's gone to my head, quite frankly. I've what been does running that mean? around there. I, it's unclear to me. I don't, I've never moderated anything on Reddit before, and frankly, I haven't since. Now, I just get notifications about stuff. It's all a bit confusing. Right, okay. You know what we should do? You know what we should do? We we should we three should do like an AMA on the on the on the Empire Podcast subreddit. That's the thing we should do. Do you think there's a demand? I mean, there are 500 people in there who I think would like to hear let us know stuff. All right, let By us know, means, folks, let us know if you've want us to do an AMA, which I believe is a sexual thing. Yes it is. Okay. <laughs> then you can uh, get in touch with us. Let us know on Twitter or indeed the subreddit. And then James and his guys as moderator will <laughs> somehow get us together and we'll hold up a piece of paper to prove that it's us. And, and then five people will ask us questions and we'll all get depressed. <laughs> Should we have guessed? Sure. Please. All right. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did a live show at King's Place in London as part of the London Podcast Festival. And one of our guests on the night was the wonderful British actor Richard Armitage, who was not there in his regular day job uh, as an actor because he is respecting the rules of the SAG after a strike. Mm-hmm. He was there, however, in his other guise, his new guise, as an author, an author. Mm-hmm. He has written a thriller called Geneva. It's about a sciencey woman who finds that she is suffering from memory loss and winds up in Geneva and all kinds of intrigue and action and dynamism and excitement happen around her. Is she suffering from memory loss or is everything as it seems? Is something nefarious going on? I couldn't possibly say. But this started out as an audible original uh, narrated by Richard Armitage along with Nicola Walker and a couple of other actors as well. And then... He was persuaded to turn it into an actual book that you can hold in your actual hands and read with your actual eyes. And so here is that interview that I did with Richard Armitage on stage, and he was a lot of fun. Enjoy. Time for another guest, folks. Now, you may be aware there's a big old strike or strikes going on at the moment, which meant that we weren't really able to have any actors on the show tonight, or so we thought. Because when is an actor not an actor? when he's an author. Ah, very clever, Chris. (laughs) When they're just about to turn author, in fact, with the imminent release of his eagerly anticipated debut novel, a thriller called Geneva, which, oh, you're way ahead of me. (laughs) 
you want to come up and tell people who it is? <laughs> okay. Uh, which was, I love it when that happens. Um, which was released first as an audiobook last year, but which will be published in hardback on October 12th. Circle that date in your calendars, folks, October 12th. Here to talk about that, and I've reassured him nothing else. <laughs> in accordance with the terms of the psych after strike is the star of Spooks, Hannibal, Captain America, The First Avenger, Strike Back, The Hobbit Trilogy, Ocean's Eight, Harlan Coben, Stay Closer, and The Stranger, and now he is the author of Geneva. Will you please welcome the one, the only, Richard Armitage! Richard Armitage! Uh, yeah, that one. <laughs> Do you remember which mug was yours? This one. Okay, good. Is it a quiz? <laughs> it's like the, uh, like the three ball trick with the cups. Uh, do you have enough water there, Richard? You have no water in your cup. Do you want to pour some water? I'm doing it now. It's going to be fascinating. Look. I'm going <sighs> to... There we go. Gives us a chance to really settle into it. Yeah, pour the gin. water for the love of God. The water's done really well to get here tonight. It's blazing hot out there. Uh, Richard, welcome. Thanks. I'm realizing why I'm here now, because of all the other actors cancelled because of the that SAG is not true. strike. <laughs> that is not true. Although I should say, I think we could be candid about this, that Richard wasn't guesting on this show until two days ago um, when I was on Twitter and I saw that you were doing a, a book tour uh, for Geneva. Yes. Uh, I kick off... Um, uh, the week of publication, which is early October, but I've just been doing, uh, you know, a, lot, a, a few of the early interviews and uh, going to the printers and signing two and a half thousand copies of the book. And, Yikes! Yeah. yeah, no, it's fun. It's great. It's a whole new world for me. So, is that a two-hander situation, or do you uh, two steady? hands, and, two hands and a foot? <laughs> Uh, so I decided, you know what, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot my shot. I'm going to shoot my shot. So I slid into Richard Armitage's DMs. Do not try this at home, folks. <laughs> do you normally respond to DMs, Miss Strangers? Do, do you, I, didn't, I can't believe you fit my Doc Martens. <laughs> how, how, how have you done that? Uh, and I invited you on, and you very graciously agreed to come on and have a chat it's about a, it's stuff. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we actually did meet once before. I'm not sure we can talk about this, but it was on set of the first Captain America movie years and years and years ago. I was another person back then. I would not remember. <laughs> you. Did you come you, to my trailer? Well, yes, I did. Was I reading The Hobbit? You were reading The Hobbit. Okay. <laughs> I was slightly distracted. Uh, yeah, and I discerned, I went full Columbo. Um, I left and then I knocked on the train. Just one more thing, sir. I couldn't help but notice you were reading a book by J.R. Tolkien. Uh, and uh, I discerned that you were reading it for professional reasons. Do you know, I had to cover that book with uh, black uh, gaffer tape because I was reading it on the train and, and trailers and people were kind of like looking at it and going, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, was that the first book you ever read? Was that what gave you the... Uh... <laughs> it was. Very, very sleuthy of you. It's <laughs> the way you were going, book, no! Um, but, uh, where did, this, where did this, this bug start? You know, this writing bug? It, it, this, this Geneva can't be just a first manifestation. It sounds like an illness, doesn't it? It does, doesn't um, it? Weirdly, this book came about because Audible asked me to write something. They... they had looked at the type of 
work that I was doing for them and also the kind of work I was involved in as an actor. And I think that algorithm sort of said, oh, crime thriller might be quite a good <laughs> thing. So they asked me to, if I wanted to write something and I immediately, in our kind of lockdown state, said, yep, absolutely, I'll happily write something. And then they put up the word ghostwriter and I said, not in a hell's chance am I going to have someone ghostwrite this because I'm going to be recording it with my voice. I can't be so inauthentic as to have a ghostwriter write something that I'm going to read. Then they got really nervous and went, oh, <laughs> oh, well, can you send us a writing sample and can you then send us a breakdown? So we, it was a staggered event. So it came in very tentative steps. Right, because you had been doing, the, the last time Richard was on the podcast, um, you were in your, <laughs> I think you were in your cupboard um, with, with blankets all, all over you because you were, it was in the middle of the pandemic. You hadn't gone mad. It was a uh, toilet. It was what? It was a toilet. It was a toilet, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Richard was in on the toilet, but, but yeah, he respects interview times, and so he answered the call anyway. Uh, you were, you were, we were talking about all the work you do for Audible. You record a lot of audiobooks, and you actually recorded at that time. You were recording in you know, this kind of homemade little sound booth that yeah, you had I made. Yeah, I mean, I did, uh, I think I did nine, what, what's four nines? 36. 36. I did 36 hours of Agatha Christie in a toilet during, during lockdown. Yeah. I was having the time of my life, honestly. It, it kept me sane. It kept me moving. Everything. Kept you regular. <laughs> Lots of fiber in the diet. Yeah. Absolutely. And I put it to you, sir, that the murderer is flush. <laughs> oh, it's a, fu it's a fun I time. Foxed you there, haven't I? You have. <laughs> Listen, I go there very naturally anyway, so it's No, all I actually good. had to move out of the toilet because the feedback I was getting was, it's a bit echoey. <laughs> so I upgraded from the toilet to an Ikea wardrobe. Wow, really? Yeah. So, See, so the last book is actually from an Ikea wardrobe. I, I think it's credited at the end as from, from the Ikea wardrobe. <laughs> you can actually hear at the end of the book someone going, Sir, we have to close. <laughs> Will you please get out of the wardrobe, sir? We have to go home. Um, but you were doing a lot of voiceovers. We talked about that last time. Um, uh, clearly, you have no memory of that. That's fine. I'm a very unmemorable person. So I take no offense, Richard. No offense whatsoever. Um, I take a little offense, if I'm honest with you. But, but uh, you do a lot, of, a lot of voiceovers, a lot of... We were talking about all the work that you do, because you're, you're an actor who likes to prepare. You don't just wing this stuff when you're going into an audiobook. I've tried to wing it. Um, I think I wung it once. <laughs> where... You can tell he's a writer, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh... I had said yes to an audio, but I'm not going to name the book, but I'd said yes oh, to an audio. Oh, come on, name the book. I can't. <laughs> I'd said yes to it without reading it, and then um, got to the point where I'd, I'd run out of time to read it ahead of recording it, and I've, you know, I always do one pass to work out who's in it and what voices to do, and, and I realised the type of audio book it was. It, honestly, it did phenomenally well, so <laughs> I am not knocking this genre at all, okay. but it was um, adult, uh, <laughs> had an adult content. <laughs> so I was getting to certain descriptions of, of uh, intimacy that I was like, the, I looked, 
<laughs> looked up at the producer and he was just sitting around like this. <laughs> so yeah, that's not my genre. I have to say that's not my, my metier. <laughs> Yeah. Geneva is not wall-to-wall -wall sex. It's not. They're, they're, uh, we, or floor-to-ceiling. It's, uh, it's, it's floor-to-wall, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there is a bit of intimacy in there. That, there is. You know, I, I, uh, I was finishing Obsession at the time, and we were looking for this for a moment in the final stages of the book, uh, and my editor had said to me, you need something which is going to kind of break this character. So I just let what was happening with Obsession sort of bleed in a little bit to the, to the writing. And, and I do that a lot. Um, well, I, I say this having written one book. Um, <laughs> I am going to do that a lot. Like, I, I do, I'm, I'm not compartmentalizing where I have to just get rid of what's happening in my day because I do have a day job. And I was allowing the day job to inform what was happening in the book, which, which when I look back at it now, is really... I can see where I was when I wrote certain sections of the book. So I started writing from a Winnebago on the set of Stay Close back in 2020. Mm. Then I was in hotel rooms in Madrid and Seville and Rome when I was shooting The Man from Rome. And then uh, sort of doing final edits during the shoot for Obsession. And I can kind of see these tiny little flickers of where my brain was at the time. So wow. I like that part of it. I think you just let everything in. Is it hard to maintain a, a routine in, in that when you're... Um, a little bit. I mean, the one thing I've learned uh, is that making, making a... And, and I've learned this from uh, doing season nine of Spooks. Seven, eight, nine, yeah. Season nine of Spooks and starting an episode with three pages because the episode wasn't finished. And I was running up and downstairs with Hermione Norris... <laughs> And I t said to the producer, am I, am I going, what, what am I running up the stairs to? And he says, it's a helicopter on the roof. I said, okay, what face do you want me to pull? Um, and and when he said, we're not sure where, you know, whether you're going to be up or down. I said, are you going to reverse the shot? So we're running in <laughs> They had no clue where this episode was going. But, but what I learned from that whole experience is kind of making your outline of your entire story watertight before you start work. So... I'm working on my second book now, and I, I've got my watertight outline. So it means I can write anything, anywhere. I can pick one chapter on a, on a red-eye flight coming back from New York and just have a little paragraph of what's going to happen in the chapter and start writing it. And it's really, it's really exciting. It's quite liberating. Wow. I can't do that. I can write on the toilet as well. All right. <laughs> can you do that? <laughs> I have been known to produce a lot of shit on the toilet. <laughs> so yes, I guess. This is absolute crap. <laughs> this is just pure filth. Um, um, does anyone have a typewriter? I want to put Richard to the test right now. Um, let's talk about the book itself. Let's talk about the story uh, for the folks who... Because uh, it did come out as an audiobook last year. Uh, but if you, for the people who haven't heard that and who might want to buy it on October 12th. What can you say about the, the story? This is a, a rollicking psychological thriller, I would say. I've learned how to do my elevator pitch. Okay. Now. Okay. It's a long elevator ride. Okay. <laughs> it's like it's 75 floors. Um, so it is a destination high-octane crime thriller. Um, okay, that's the Faber pitch. But it's about uh, a Nobel Prize-winning scientist called Sarah Collier who is lured out of retirement to go to Geneva to endorse a neural implant. 
she is beginning to experience the, the signs of early onset dementia, which is what her father has. But when she gets to Geneva, she realizes that the, her mental condition is being manipulated and she's at the center of a crime, uh, which is sort of unfathomable to her and she has to get out of Geneva really quick. So that is the sort of uh, thrust of the story. Oh, and was this a story that had been creeping and crawling around your brain for a long time, or was it once Faber came to you and said, Armitage, crime novel, go, now, that you began to think about something? Yeah, the minute somebody says, do you have any story ideas, you sit for a weekend with, you know, a few vodkas, <laughs> <laughs> and you fall down a few rabbit holes of what things really trigger me. What, uh, and I'd remembered this story from being really young, and it's my, the hairs on my arm are standing up as I remember remembering. Um, wow. So there was a film that I'd watched with my mum, and I just couldn't remember the title of the film. I was so young, but I had to put into the Google search engine, woman scrapes wallpaper away with her fingernails to find her brother who is buried in a hotel room next door. Because this film had had such a big impact on my brain and my storytelling sort of thrill. So I found out what that film was, and I used that as a tiniest seed of the idea of someone being gaslit. Yeah. And then, uh, because it was the pandemic, I'd been watching a lot of documentary about Sarah Gilbert, who headed up the AstraZeneca vaccine program. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in what would her, I wanted to make a TV drama about her life. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna use the basis of somebody like her in that situation and see how we can bend and break her. So that was the seed of the idea. Wow. What was the film? The film is called So Long at the Fair with Gene Simmons. It's like a 1950s oh, wow. Gainsborough. Okay. I mean, it's kind of it's, it's sort of shabby in its production value, but it's a brilliant concept. Really, so you, really exciting. You tracked it back down, you rewatched it, and did it trigger the same old feelings? That Yeah, and I was just waiting for this scene, thinking, is this a scene that I've invented as a, as a very imaginative kid, or does it exist in the film? Because that sometimes happens when you think you've yeah. seen something, but you haven't. Anyway, got to that moment, and I sort of froze the video and went, oh, this is the scene that this whole story has sort of been triggered from when she finally realizes that they've been gaslighting her all along. And I, I just, I love that kind of rabbit hole that you can fall down. Yeah. So in terms of actually writing it, approaching it, what was that, what was that like when you first put finger to keyboard, pen to paper, how prepared were you? Did you have everything, did you have the first sentence in your head or was it very much a case of, I'm gonna see where I, this takes me? <laughs> well, very much like when you get the phone call offering you an acting job where you go, yes, oh shit. Because <laughs> you've got to do all of the work. I did kind of go, yes, oh shit realizing the, the mountain of agreeing to write a book and thinking, I've never written anything really more than uh, a, a proof of concept screenplay of 50 pages or an essay for my A-levels. And this had to be 80,000 words minimum. And I just thought, okay, just do it as you approach a role, like something like The Hobbit, thinking, okay, I'm just gonna take this step by step. I'm gonna just piece this together really slowly and don't try to, you know, imagine the whole thing in one go or don't try to swallow the big pill that it was. So I I, uh, I just did that. I just, on a daily basis, just went back to it and just slowly put the story in place and then added all of the, the nuances that, that go with a classic crime thriller. And you weren't tempted uh, to to kind of write what you know. I mean, we had a couple of years ago, we had David Thewlis um, was on this very, very show, the London Podcast Festival show, talking about 
his novel, which was set kind of tangentially in and around the film industry as well. You weren't tempted to go down that, that route? Not in this case. I, weirdly, my, the second book, which I've started, um, I'm up to about chapter seven, is much more about my childhood, childhood and what happens into adulthood and elements of the film industry. And I'm, I'm more thrilled than ever to kind of go back every weekend and start writing again. But this was more of a kind of, if I was making a TV series or film, we are making a TV series and film. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, but can't talk about it. Uh, what, what would it be like, you know? And also, because I was being asked to um, read one of the characters, so I had to sort of write something for myself to read, and they kept saying to me, you've got to beef up this character because you're focusing too much on the, cent the female central mm, character. Okay, yeah. Write more for yourself. So I was like, okay, if, if I was making this into a six-part TV show, we are making it into a six-part. Um, <laughs> What would it look like? What would it feel like? So, um, and weirdly, at the end of that process, I realized that my editor, the br brilliant woman, Josephine Lane, had worked for the Fleming estate a long time ago. Wow. So there were these bond elements coming in, sort of in synchronicity with our brains, as she was giving me sort of guidance. And I was, I was sort of writing a bit Bond, a bit Bourne, a bit Agatha Christie, a bit Alfred Hitchcock, a bit David Fincher, trying to encapsulate that in a novel. Um, and th yeah. those were my influences, and they will be my influences when we make the TV show. <laughs> I was going to say, it's intensely cinematic, or, or televisual in this case, potentially. But definitely, totally. Thank you, Sony. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, weirdly, yeah. I, think, I think that's sort of how I write now, having written one, writing another. I think I spend a lot of time procrastinating, thinking, dreaming up each moment. I still refer to chapters as scenes. Uh, I, I'm writing screenplay in my head and then remolding it into a sort of novelistic way orchestrating it and sort of overwording it, you know, and stripping out dialogue and all, the, all of this stuff that, that I've sort of picked up along the way, as you see television stories, you mm. know, how they manifest themselves. So, um, so yeah, I, I, but I spend more time thinking and then when I'm ready, I'll just write it. <laughs> as we said, you, uh, you are no stranger to narrating audiobooks. Uh, they can be quite long audiobooks. The Geneva audiobook is a sprightly nine hours, which is, which is good. Uh, but are you ever worried that because they're so long, the, the listener may be tuning out a little bit? So do you, do you throw in a wake up every, every now and again, <laughs> just to make sure? Much like television, whereby you have to sort of incorporate everyone popping off for a pee break or a tea break. <laughs> There is, this, there is a sort of musical structure where you grab them back when they've come back from making their tea. Yeah. After the, like in television, it's in 12-minute segments. And I think musically my brain was writing the book in these, in these excerpts, so you have to give them a little hook to kind of pull them back in, whether that's opening a chapter with something a little bit shocking. Uh, yeah, no, I was aware of that. But also the, the nine hours is... is um, it's the perfect return flight, really. From, from, <laughs> so you can listen to half of it on the way out and half of it on the way back. But yeah, I think, I think someone's done the maths on an, a crime thriller, knowing that, I mean, in fact, my editor was like, you will lose your audience if you, if you overwrite this chapter. 
And I'm like, yeah, but I love all these words. And she's like, no, it's not going to work. That's interesting. So I had to cut yeah. them and then sneak them back in somewhere else. Uh, how much of that is, say, the Harlan Coben influence? Because I know you thank him in, your, in the, in the uh, introduction to the book. And obviously you've done two Harlan Coben adaptations. Three. Three? Yep. My apologies. <laughs> well, the third one's not out yet. That's out oh, in January. That's out in January. <laughs> for, for a second, Richard, I thought Harlan Coben had written The Hobbit. And I thought, jeez, <laughs> that's, that's a book I'd love to read, by the way. <laughs> Harlan did actually, uh, I, I'd, I'd, um, his new show is out on Amazon um, Shelter. And I'd, I'd sort of message him saying, oh, my God, can't wait to see it. And he's like, are you in it? And I'm like, I don't know. Am I in it? I'm in everything else. Um, <laughs> I, I learned a hell of a lot from him, just from reading his words on the page, but also watching how he adapts from page to screen, seeing how kind of democratic he is, how unprecious he is about his own work, letting things go, and tuning into... I've interviewed him like this, actually, and I've, sn I've snuck in some questions that I really wanted to know. Um, and things like, you know, he, he... I think something he said to me that really stuck in my head is he's never, ever regretted anything he's cut from a book and he's never put it back. Wow. And also he doesn't do any research, which I was like, but I've been on a road trip to Geneva and I've, I've done the, all of the <laughs> car journeys and I found the hotel and he's like, he could have done that on Google. Uh, Richard, it has been a ton of fun talking to you, but, uh, but you've got another book to write. And <laughs> I do. Not on the toilet, I'm guessing. I'm not on the toilet. And not I've on the a, toilet. I've got a script to develop. <laughs> I worry you keep things too close to your chest. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Richard Armitage, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that was Richard Armitage and Geneva. The book is out now in hardback for you to read, should you wish to do so. And still, as an audible original, uh, if you want to listen to his smooth, dulcet tones. That interview happened at a live show, and we have another live show coming up in November, November 9th, to be precise, in Leeds. Leeds, Leeds, Leeds. Uh, we're going up to Leeds on November 9th as part of the Journalism and Media Week, and tickets for that went on sale last week and are selling pretty nicely, but could sell pretty nicer as well. So uh, if you want to go, it's a really complicated URL, so just check out my Twitter. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest, I don't... No, it's... Um, store.leadstrinity.ac.uk <laughs> A bitly would have killed you. What? A bitly would have killed you. What's a bitly? A bit Is this a red dwarf thing? <laughs> no. Is this a sex thing? Is this a subreddit thing? Yes, never touch another man's bitly. Uh, it's a URL shortening service. Oh, a bitly. But then that would have been nonsensical as well. This, this way I'm giving people the right thing. store.leadstrinity.ac.uk Tickets are just £10, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I'm in talks with a very interesting guest. Hopefully we'll be able to me? lock them down. No, James, you're part of the team. Damn it! So we're looking forward to that, so do come along to that as well. Right, shall we have some movie news? And please, Jesus Christ, is there any movie news? Because uh, there hasn't been the last two weeks, and it's been an exercise in stretching things out beyond their natural dying point. There have been some trailers. There yeah. was a trailer for Prisoner Cell Block H, and the H, of course, stands for Helen. Hathaway. Oh. <laughs> because it's Eileen. Did you see the Eileen trailer? 
So, um, okay, yes, I'm worried. So it's basically Prison Carol, and it is Thomas and McKenzie is a secretary in a prison, and Anne Hathaway arrives as the prison psychologist. Yeah. And a frisson is detected. Uh, and it looks really good in a kind of psychological, thrillery, typey way. This is uh, William Aldroyd's uh, film, set in the 60s. Okay. Looks interesting. Yeah. So it looks like a great on, performance uh, from, from Hathaway. I'm confused. Is this a prisoner cell block H no, movie? No, it is. It is not in any way. It is called Eileen, as in come on. I, I feel like that's a maybe a misleading way to introduce this news story then to I everyone. I was like, <laughs> everyone's a critic, is it? Well, let, so, literally okay. everyone in prisoner this room is a cell critic. Block yes, ha- ha- H for Hathaway. So it was like there's, it's like thematically connected. No? Yeah, no. no? I, I get where you're going no? with it. It's just the way you said it was really confusing. Okay. I was like, oh, did I miss something? Is so what a... you're saying, I should have said, come on, Helen, it's Eileen. That would have been better. <laughs> I mean, it's better is such a strong word. <laughs> anyway, this is a film that's coming out. I enjoyed the trailer. Okay. I'm sure other people will too. So, you know, maybe great, watch it. Great actors excited about this one. It's only a couple of weeks away, really, isn't it? It's soon. Two or three it is weeks. soon. So Christmas. I noticed that, so this weekend, mm. um, ITV is starting their their sort of semi-annual um, Harry Potter rewatch and Philosopher's Stone is this week and that gives you some idea of how far away Christmas is. That I mean, is also calendars. Crazy. Well, okay, yes, if you're, I mean, boring, but otherwise <laughs> you can see, oh, which which Harry Potter movie is on this week? Oh, that tells me how many weeks we're out of Christmas. Yeah, Christmas is just a few weeks away and just around the corner, of course, is... Oh, no. No. You guys hear that? No, we don't. Yes, we can. Yes. So weird, I can hear that. What is it? I wonder what James, was it? Twelve more days to Halloween. 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 Twelve more days to Halloween. A time of recording. Twelve more days to Halloween. 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 But really eleven if you're listening to this on the twentieth of October, when it's just when this would normally go out. Oh boy. Hey, so the trailer for the new George Clooney movie dropped. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, The Boys in the Boat, for it is it, um, is uh, is coming in January. And this is the adaptation of the non-fiction book, the account of the University of Washington rowing team who basically got recruited for the Olympics and went to the Hitler Olympics, the ones in Berlin in the 1930s, the ones that Jesse Owens dominated the oh, track. Oh, right, yes. But um, these were the ones where uh, this this very underdog team were up against the Germans in the rowing as well. But it's it's about more than that. It's also about them coming together as a team in the first place, fighting for the the chance to represent the US. Spoiler: they totally do. And um, and and the whole sort of context because this was during the Depression and they were uh, many of them really struggling to get by. They were dependent on a place in the rowing team to be able to stay in college, and uh, and this was kind of like their whole future depended on it as well as maybe a gold medal or two so based on the book by daniel james brown this has been talked about in hollywood for years i read the book because it had been optioned and it sounded interesting and that was i just checked back in 2011 wow it's been going around for a while kenneth branagh was attached at one point but it's now coming from uh, clooney as director and stars callum turner um as joe rance who's kind of one of the main point of view characters in the book what do you think of clooney as a director I I I think he's fine, I like solid, him. but we're hardly going to be here in ten years' time listing George Clooney directorial Aww. efforts, are we? Good night, and good luck. I absolutely adore. I have that on DVD. Yeah. I forget. Yeah, it doesn't get the 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 pulse racing though, does it? it? Doesn't get the blood pumping. Well, I mean, if you do a bit of rowing, it'll that'll take care of both of those things. If you watched, why not watch this film while on a rowing machine? There you go. That could work. I watch. Or uh, the I... cinema. If you get somebody to throw some water at you as you do it. <laughs> 
I, uh, I live by the river and I, now and again I'll look out the window like ratty and I'll see people rowing by on the, on the yeah, Thames there's, and, there's a know, boat club near you isn't there there is a boat club and I often mm. see uh, grown men playing with their cocks on the on the water <laughs> When I look out my window, so yeah, yeah. Um, there was some other movie news. Oh, thank God. This week, uh, so uh, Al Pacino is going to star in the JFK thriller Assassination. No prizes for guessing which part of JFK's life it's about. Uh, the his end. teenage years. Correct. Uh, this is written by David Mamet, so ten out of ten, right there. And uh, it's starring Viggo Mortensen, Shia LaBeouf, John Travolta, and Courtney Love, as well as Al Pacino, who's so- playing a mob boss in it. What's it called? Assassination. Assassination? Yeah. Why? Who's playing yeah. the Grassy Knoll? Yeah, they haven't listed that here. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, who's playing Kennedy? I'm not sure. I mean... Or is this I, like I a Parkland It might be, thing. yeah. He's, he's not in it. It's basically about the theory Parkland. that... Um, <laughs> Sam Giancana kind of orchestrated or, or ordered the assassination of Kennedy. That it, You know, that there was a mob... It was a mob hit because of all the RICO work that Bobby Kennedy was doing under JFK. Oh, there you go. Okay. So. I want him dead. Okay. You're going to kill him. You're going to shoot him from the bookstore depository. That kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, so ah. Playing Tony Accardo. Who's playing Not Tony Accardo? Pacino. Pacino. All right. Who's Shia LaBeouf playing? I don't know, but if, I mean, out of these lot, maybe he's Kennedy. He's not That's far off the right age spectacularly bad casting. I'm, look, I'm speculating. <laughs> I'm not Pacino saying Pacino would be a better be... Kennedy at this point, wouldn't he? Vega Mortensen, but he's like 20 years older than Kennedy was. He is, yeah. So I don't know. There may I get like I said, this might not be re- representative at all. Maybe Kennedy's not in who's it. Who's playing Kennedy? Exactly. He may yeah. be just seen from a distance. From a distance. Anything else? I want to talk about one really weird sounding film that I don't understand, and maybe you guys can explain it to me. Okay. Is it a sex film? <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't be averse to that reading of it because it stars Oscar Isaac, Jason Momoa, and Jared Butler. Uh-huh. It's called In the Hands of Dante. Ah, yes, it's the Fast and Furious spin-off that people were waiting for. Is it, though? No. Because, so it's executive produced by Martin Scorsese. Oh, we like him. Yeah, we do, we, just we do like his him. his movies chronologically. Yes. Uh, it's directed by Julian Schneibel, Ooh, as in like Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Yes. Okay. Split across two timelines. Oh. In the present day, um, Oscar Isaac is a scholar who is called on by smugglers to authenticate an, a Dante original document. So oh, is Helen, it Dante Alighieri? It's not literal. It's an allegory. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. Anyway, he ends up stealing the manuscript instead of authenticating it and running away with his lover at his side. And apparently, it says here, carving a bloody path from hell to heaven. Nobody wants to do that. Why would you do that? And in, And then also, there's like... Uh, the story of Alighieri himself traveling from Sicily and trying to finish his opus, literally escaping from a loveless marriage and seeking to immortalize his lost true love, Beatrice. I, I'm so. Who plays Dante out of those three? If Oscar Isaac is the modern day dude, is Jason Momoa Dante? I think so. Is that where we're at as I a think society? It is. Because. He plays Gosh. all Dantes in all films. Yeah, this is it. This is it. Enchanté. He insists only on playing Dante. And in fact, all of his movies have now been retconned. So they're, <laughs> they're now Dante movies. Aqua Dante Man. He plays Dante Curry. Yeah. <laughs> in Aquaman. The Lost Dante. It's the only thing that makes sense. It is in the this only crazy, thing. topsy-turvy world of ours, it is mm. the only thing that makes He's sense. He's also replaced Tom Hanks in Inferno. It is now Dante's Inferno. 
and Dante's Peak. He's the yeah. mountain. He's, he's the volcano mountain. in that. Mountain yeah. Mountain. Yeah. Dante's yeah. Dante's yeah. Peak. Yeah. And he is also now the director of Gremlins. Mm. Uh, oh, I, I hate yeah. to tell you. I Dante look now. All of them. Dante look now, James. <laughs> yes. Dante look now. Uh, anything else? Anything else happening in the world of movie news? There's not a lot. Afraid not. No. Why is that? Because the actors are on strike, Chris. Are they? <laughs> Where's your proof? Uh, and nothing's happening in that regard, right? Nothing's nothing's budging. Nothing, nothing this week. No, there, last week there was the rather explosive breakdown in yeah. negotiations uh, with both sides blaming the other. Um, and the actors in the right. Uh, so it, we we await to see more movement. I, I, I mean, look, I may be being slightly simplistic here, but have they learned nothing from the WGA strike where they came to the table, they walked away from the table, they cost themselves a shitload of money and then gave the writers what they wanted? And it feels like they're just doing the same thing again. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, uh, you know, as, as many people have pointed out, if you have trained people for years not to expect much in the way of money and certainly not to expect it in a timely <laughs> and regular fashion, you know, they're going to be able to survive a strike better than you. So, hey. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. Tay, tay. Hey, hey. Uh, there is oh, another trailer I did want to talk about very quickly, which looks tremendous. And it is American Fiction. Did you see this? I did not know. I've been meaning to watch it, actually. So tell me more. It looks absolutely wonderful. So this is a film that is written and directed by Cord Jefferson. And it stars Jeffrey Wright as an author who is struggling to get recognition for his work. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is somewhat frustrated to see what he considers to be um, somewhat false representation of, of people, of black authors who will maybe write uh, an inauthentic... It's tropes, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah, trope-filled um, depiction of the black experience. Uh, and that's what sells, rather than yes. something that's true to their authentic selves. He, he, as uh, he and says then, in the trailer, it's yes. like, I'm black, I wrote this, therefore it's black writing. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, and then he, uh, he pulls a Tootsie. <laughs> and he writes a book... Uh, that is completely not only trope-filled uh, and it becomes a big success. And as, then a he, uh, as a joke. As a joke. And then he presents himself, he, uh, he has in a, in a sort of desperation, he begins to present himself as this author with a hardened gangland prison, <laughs> you know, prison-filled uh, back, background. And it, it, it looks really funny, yes. really smart, really clever. And Jeffrey Wright is having a hell of a moment right mm. now. So, yeah, that looks great. American okay. fiction. Looks good. looks like it's going to have a lot to say as well. So, yeah, keep and peel for that one. Keep and peel for that one. And we're going to finish off, as we often do, uh, sadly, with the obituary section. And uh, I want to mention the, the passing of Anthony Hickox, uh, who was a director of horror comedies and horror films and, and thrillers. I loved a number of his films growing up as a kid. I loved the comedy horror Waxwork, which starred Zach Galligan and was about, and David Warner, mm -hmm. uh, and was about a, uh, and Patrick McNee, uh, and was about a group of waxworks coming to life and was a, a ton of fun. He also directed uh, uh, Sundown, the vampire in retreat with Bruce Campbell, uh, and he directed Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. And I had the, and I was, a, I was a fan of those early movies, and I got to interview him on a movie he made in 2011 called Knife Edge, a thriller he made. Uh, and we had a grand old time just sitting on the grass, 
having a chat about stuff. And mm. gradually I made it clear that I was a, a big fan of waxwork in particular. And he was a really, really lovely guy. His mother was Anne V. Coates, who oh, was wow. a legendary yeah. editor of Lawrence of Arabia. Mm -hmm. So the woman who is responsible for perhaps one of the 10 greatest edits in movie history, the match cut, literal mm -hmm. match cut in, in that movie, along with, you know, many other wonderful, many, many wonderful cuts. Uh, someone in the subreddit, by the way, was asking where that comes from. They were. It's from Police Academy. Um, and his dad was Douglas Hickox, who directed Theatre of Blood. So a good upbringing. He was always going to be a film director, I guess, with parents like that. And we lost Today, just before we came to record, uh, Burt Young, the great Burt yeah. Young, who was Oscar nominated for his uh, turn as Paulie in the original Rocky and, of course, went on to star in most of, but not all, the subsequent sequels uh, as well. And just had this real air of, he was a very, very good actor and it was more to his his bow than, than Paulie, of course, but you felt that you were watching not so much an actor, but uh, the real thing with Paulie. Very much uh, so. in those movies. Just so much warmth coming off him, really. Yeah. He's also, yeah. I mean, not every second of every Not every second. Yeah. <laughs> not every second. Uh, but he was, uh, yeah, he was a very, very good actor indeed. And, you know, he was also in the likes of Once Upon a Time in America, mm -hmm. Last Exit to Brooklyn and Chinatown. And the news of his death was announced today at the age of 83. The great Burt Young. And Anthony Hickox, by the way, died when he was 64, just 64, no age at all, but no. they will both be missed. All right, we got time for one more guest and then we'll do the review section and then our final guest. So who do you want? Do you want Garth Davis, the director of Foe, or do you want Errol Morris, the director of The Pigeon Tunnel? In fact, I'm going to go Errol Morris and then Garth Davis. So, Errol Morris. Yeah, fancy bit of Errol Morris. Yeah. Who is a documentary legend. He directed things. He won an Oscar for The Fog of War. Uh, he is a pioneer of a fascinating style of documentaries and a fascinating way of depicting interviews in, in documentaries. He invented, this is something we talk about mm -hmm. in the interview, the Enterotron, which is a camera system that allows interviewees to look at him whilst looking directly at the camera. Through a complicated series of mirrors, pulleys and levers, uh, he is able to uh, elicit that effect. It is absolutely transformative. It's hugely influential. Uh, and his new film, which is now uh, in cinemas and on Apple TV+, is The Pigeon Tunnel, which is a documentary about the life of John le Carré. But John le Carré, of course, was not John le Carré. John le Carré was a British how would you say, a spy-turned-author uh, called David Cornwell. And he wasn't much given to giving interviews over the years, David Cornwell, but he gave to Errol Morris uh, one last epic interview over the course of four days in 2019. Uh, Cornwell passed away in 2020 uh, about his life, about his upbringing, and about what compelled him to write incredible books like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh, A Murder of Quality, the Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Yeah, and many, many other wonderful John the Carry books. Uh, and uh, I was going to interview Errol Morris face-to-face, -face, but uh, I was in the, right at the height of this awful bastarding cold of mine, and so decided not to do it face-to-face. Uh, -face. So we did it over Zoom instead, and I found it to be a, a really wonderful interview. Uh, funny, funny and self-aware. And... Um, and more than capable of busting my balls, as you were about to hear. 
Uh, here's the great Errol Morris. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director of the Pigeon Tunnel, Mr. Errol Morris. How are you, sir? I'm okay, thank you. That's <laughs> good, that's good. Uh, I am currently, I feel very, very bad. I have a very, very bad cold slash chest infection. So so okay is an upgrade on where I am, which is, uh, <laughs> which is good. Um, Errol, obviously... Uh, Please don't die on me in the middle of the podcast. That would be a hell of a thing, wouldn't it? Perhaps. <laughs> it'd be, a, it'd be a, a way to go out, that is for sure. Um, but you have, you have obviously this film is centred on interviews you conducted with uh, David Cornwell, a.k.a. John Le Carre, over four days, I believe, in 2019. Yes, indeed. Uh, and were they four consecutive days, or did you go back and, and pick things up as, as when you needed Four consecutive days. Four consecutive days. Um, how well did you know him before you went into those those interviews? I didn't know him at all. It's how I prefer to do things. Really, our conversations on film are our first, not our very first conversations, to be scrupulously honest. But I did not know him well before making this film. Okay, that's interesting. So why do you prefer to do it that way? Element of spontaneity. You tell me. <laughs> we have not met before, by the way. We're we're doing exactly the same thing. You prefer to do it that way? Uh, sometimes it's the way it happens inevitably. It's just the way it happens. This is the, the the junket life. But it is interesting when you go in. You're you're pitched headlong into an interview. Do you have? Do you go in with an idea of where you want to take things? Of where you want to go? No, I don't. I don't really believe in having some predetermined idea of where an interview is going to go. Uh, I don't have a list of questions that I'm going to ask um, or a list of answers that I expect to receive (laughs) in reply to the questions that I don't ask. (laughs) I like it just to emerge. It's a conversation. Yeah. And if you know what you're going to hear in advance, why bother doing it at all? This method, you've obviously conducted a lot of interviews over the years. Uh, has your technique changed? Is that, is that how you began? Or did you go in at the beginning with, with questions written down, with an idea of what you wanted to elicit? No, I began with this crazy idea, I call it the shut the fuck up school of interviewing. (laughs) Um, I don't have a list of questions. And I try, at least in the very first interviews that I did, I try to shut the fuck up. I try not to interrupt. I try to get the person who I'm interviewing try to get them to talk and to talk and then talk some more and to keep talking. Well, of course, you have the luxury of time, Errol. If, if, I, if I subscribed to the Shut the Fuck oh, Up School of Interviewing... Oh, you're making excuses for yourself now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so. You've got me. You've got me. I could try. I could try to shut the fuck up and see how we do for the next 15 minutes or so of this interview. It hasn't worked. Okay. (laughs) 
I tried. You haven't I tried. even tried. Look I at know. this. I've got 15 minutes left, you Errol. You can't be silent. You had four days. You had four days with David Cornwell. Oh, yeah. This is now making excuses for yourself again. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. Uh, so how did you? How did you start with, with David Cornwell? I've noticed often that I'll start an interview by saying, I don't know where to start, <laughs> which is usually absolutely true. I don't know where to start. I'm hoping somebody will help me. <laughs> please, please, dear God, somebody help me. <laughs> David, on the other hand, scrupulously prepared for this interview. He watched a lot of my films. He thought about the questions he wanted me to ask, uh, the answers he wanted to give. He did exactly the opposite of what I would do in an interview, which is interesting. And very early on, he starts to suggest that there's no difference between an interview and an interrogation. Mm. Uh, something I've thought about ever since. I go back and forth. And, uh, there is, there isn't, there is, there isn't, whatever. I think there is a difference. Yeah, I would say there's a difference. In an interrogation, usually it's on behalf of some authority. For example, the police. Yeah. Uh, or the CIA. Or, or the circus. <laughs> or the circus. Um. An interview, there are all kinds of interviews, as we all know. Um, and I like a certain kind of interview. I like the idea of discovering something about another person. And I love doing this interview with John Le Carre. Loved it. Because the guy is extraordinarily articulate. Yep. Extraordinarily smart. It's fun. And I could explore certain things with him. You might even think of the film as the philosophy of John Le Carre. Yeah, very much so. Uh, how long did you have? You had four. You, you had you had four days, but how long were the were the interview sessions? I had more time than you've been given. <laughs> which I already tell you're deeply, deeply resentful. <laughs> and I apologize. I'm really sorry that I had so much time. No, no. It, it's, I can see why you're antagonized by the very thought of it. I'm furious. I'm furious at the idea that someone Absolutely has more than 20 furious. minutes. Yes. <laughs> Angry. I think you can hear my voice. Yes. Why John Le Carre? And did you think of him as John Le Carre initially? Or did, did you come to know him as David over the, the course of the four days? Well, I came to know him as David because <laughs> that's his name. That's his name. But yeah, I'm fascinated by people who, who operate under pseudonyms. I've interviewed, for example, Lee Child a lot over the years. And he thinks of himself pretty much now as Lee Child, even though that's not his real name. Yeah. I wondered if David operated the same way. One thing I didn't ask him, you do an interview, inevitably, you haven't asked a lot of the questions you would have liked to have asked, should have asked, could have asked, 
whatever. But one of the things is that question you just asked. Um, I suppose, why the pseudonym? Why didn't you go out into the world as a writer with your real name, David Cornwell? Why John le Carre? I mean, there's even a sign in his house in Cornwall, uh, be calm and le Carre on. <laughs> I love that. It's interesting as well because he he fairly quickly came out, so to speak. There's there's footage in your film of him on talk shows in the 1960s as David Cornwell. So it's not like he was keeping the ruse going for a long time. But I never asked him. Yeah. No. Oh. <laughs> Lost to the mists of time. Yeah, you can yell at me, you can scold <laughs> me, but pseudonyms are interesting. Yeah, very much so. And maybe it's a form of hiding. But as you pointed out, if he was hiding, he didn't hide very well. <laughs> True. So did did you approach him? Was it the idea to make this movie yours? Uh, the idea really came from me and from a producer, PJ Van Sandwick, who was working with him on a completely different project and thought, you know, Mr. Morris, you should interview John Le Carre. And so a meeting was set up. Um, and it's one of those terrible things. We liked each other. <laughs> and Apple was willing to provide financing for the project. People always tell me they have a really great idea for a movie. I always say, well, do you have a great idea how to pay for the movie? <laughs> um, uh, and here we had a great idea for a movie and a great idea of how to pay for it. <laughs> so you did those four days with him in 2019. And then how do you then shape the movie from that point on? Because uh, as as with a lot of your movies, there's there's there are reconstructions and, um, and and moments where you're putting visuals to John Le Carre's words. So how much of that is something that you zero in on at the time when he says something? Do you think okay, that's that's going in the movie? I'm gonna I'm gonna reconstruct that. Inevitably, as a filmmaker, or at least as this filmmaker, I'm constantly thinking of images. It's unavoidable. Uh, I suppose I could have some kind of elaborate brain surgery <laughs> to prevent that stuff, but I haven't. Yeah. One of the reasons I liked The Pigeon Tunnel when I read it, and I read it not so long before I actually did the interview, uh, is because it suggested extraordinary imagery. It, it, it's like a series of parables something you could read right out of Franz Kafka, uh, the very beginning of the book, which is the story of the pigeon tunnel itself, yep. Yep. and the very end of the book, which is the story of Rudolf Hess's mm -hmm. flight from the Third Reich to Scotland in order to presumably make a peace with the British government and to end the war. 
And both of those stories, uh, they suggest images. Yeah. Are you fascinated by by great authors? So I imagine you were a Le Carre fan going into this. I was not a Le Carre fan going into this. Oh, interesting. You've imagined something incorrectly. <laughs> I had read Tinker Tailor. I had read Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Two books which I rather like, I still rather like. I had not read The Pigeon Tunnel. I read The Pigeon Tunnel again shortly before I did this interview. And I loved The Pigeon Tunnel. Love, love, loved it. It was great. It's still, at the time, my favorite Le Carre book. It remains my favorite Le Carre book, even though I've read a lot more since becoming involved in this project. But, yeah. Yeah. A lot to think about. And I make movies so I can think about stuff. <laughs> and this was extraordinary in that regard. You could think about a lot of stuff. Nature of history, nature of truth, espionage. Mm -hmm. Interrogation versus interview. He may have thought he was interrogating me. I always thought I was interviewing him. <laughs> and were both of you students of the school of Shut the Fuck Up uh, during this interview? Did you... Did you did you? Thank God he wasn't. I needed him to talk. <laughs> but I can just imagine him, a man who's been used to interrogations himself, Errol, maybe sitting at the other side of the Interrotron, which has got the word intero in it, of course. So you can th you can see why he'd make that connection. But and then just maybe thinking, I'll wait this guy out. I'll wait him out. Do people know what the Interatron is? I'll explain it before we uh, set up the interview, but we can we can explain it now because it's a, a fascinating invention. Yeah, I was obsessed with eye contact and the problem of preserving eye contact between an interviewer and his subject. Uh, how do you do that? Because if we're talking and the camera's out here somewhere and I look into your eyes, I'm not looking into the camera's lens. So I devised a system of mirrors, two cameras, to preserve eye contact. Yeah. And it produced amazing results. I could never have predicted in advance the benefits of the Interatron. Interatron technology. <laughs> it's amazing because now I see I see it used so often in documentaries, and I've spoken to so many documentarians over the years who who use your technique as well. So I hope they give me credit. I hope they give you royalties. Is, is what I no royalties. Hope. I never patented it. I was too stupid, <laughs> but uh, I did invent it. It is your gift to the world. Um, I read somewhere else that. You had, in the 80s, written two Stephen King adaptations. You turned two Stephen King works into screenplays, which didn't get off the ground. Yes. Is this true? Because I, I can't find what those screenplays were. What, what was, can you tell us what you wrote? I was hired by Dino De Laurentiis um, to do an adaptation of Cycle of the Werewolf. And... 
I can't say it's one of my happiest experiences. <laughs> I can imagine. I have not. very little to compare it to. I suppose I could think about being run over by an asphalt road grader. I don't know. I <laughs> I have a hard time coming up with adequate comparisons, but it was an unfortunate experience. It feels like it was. It feels like it was. And what was the second one? If it was Cycle of the Werewolf? I don't even know. And, and something else. Okay. But God, it's been erased like a magic slate from my consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> well, Errol, if I had another three and a half days, uh, I could I could dig into this with you and, and dredge up some more unhappy memories, but uh, but I have to go. Well, I hope you feel better. Thank you very much. I hope you feel better than okay. Thank you. (laughs) Errol Morris, pleasure. Thank you so much. Cheers. Take care. Okay, so that was Errol Morris. Now it's time to talk about the films that are out this week on your Silverplex and also your Multiplex. And there's only really one place to start. And that's with Marty. Trolls band together. That's with Trolls band together. (laughs) That's with Foe. It's with The Burial. It's with The Pigeon Tunnel. No, it is with Killers of the Flower Moon. James has already given a little bit of a trailer, a little bit of a preview of where he stands, uh, basically alone. Should I, should I qualify this yeah. slightly before I do it? So should we review it first? Should we review it first? We probably should review it first. Um, this is his 26th by the thing we did the, just before. 26th movie, is it 26? I think it's 26. We're going to say 26. It's, it's in now, the ballpark. It's his 26th movie. So this is set in the 1920s. Is based on the book by David Gran, and it centers around the Osage Nation of indigenous people in America who owned land where there was a great deal of oil wealth and everyone wanted a piece of it at one point. They were the richest people in the world per capita. Uh, and this centres around a number of characters. It centres around Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who is a man of, should we say, limited intelligence uh, and morals, who returns from the First World War to go and live with his uncle, uh, played by Robert De Niro, who plays King. King William Hale. Uh, And he is a friend to the Osage people in name only, I think it's fairly safe to say. And essentially, they want some of their great wealth. So it sets about a film whereby through marriage, through murder, through general criminal, criminal activity, they attempt to get some of this oil wealth for themselves. Now, I should say, this film is immaculately made. I will not take that away from it. It looks absolutely stunning. The performances are incredible. And in many ways, this is Scorsese at the absolute top of his game. Like you, It, it is flawless from a technical uh, perspective. And the execution of it is amazing. And it's a beautiful story that's very, very well told. So I, I can't fault this film. And I'm not saying it's a bad film. I think the thing with this film is it is at once very personal. And it is almost epic in scope. But I feel... The nature of the perspectives this film takes, which is a very... its It doesn't come from, from the Osage point of view. It's very much from Burkhardt's point of view, from King's point of view, from the sort of the white men in this. Because of that scope, I feel like partly you don't get what you want, which is a real look at the Osage people themselves. So I should mention Lily Gladstone, who plays Molly, uh, who is the young woman that Ernest ends up marrying. She acts the socks off everyone else on the screen. Is an absolutely extraordinary, understated performance in this film, and she's wonderful. But I feel like other than her, you don't really get a way mm-hmm. into the Osage people, and that was something that I felt was slightly lacking. But the point I was trying to make is I feel a little bit like either make a film or make a miniseries. 
And I felt like he was trying to have his cake and eat it here by making a miniseries but putting it out as a film. And I just feel like it didn't need to be as long as it is. I have nothing, I have no issues with a three-hour film. I actually think if you cover a lot of ground, like be it Avatar The Way of Water, be it Endgame, you know, Dances with Wolves, go nuts, like make it three hours. I felt like this could have been told in two, two and a half hours. Uh, okay. I mean, I actually agree that it could lose some time. It's three hours, 24 minutes. It's long. Clear. Um but equally, it far more happens in this than Dances with Wolves, for a start. Hey, so, no one in this film dances with a wolf. No, but neither really does anybody <laughs> in Dances with Wolves. So we're going to leave that back. But I, I do agree that there could have been more... I mean, Martin Scorsese talked quite a lot about the fact that he wanted to bring the Osage point of view, the Osage story, to the screen. And, and you know, he, he obviously brings this story to light, and I think he, he does so with a lot of nuance and a lot of respect for the Osage people. But equally, he is not himself one of them, and he does not actually have one of them as his point of view characters, as you say. It, it, Molly, it is not actually Molly's no. film, although we were told by some commentators that it was. I don't believe that. I don't think that is it either. And I do think there's a missed opportunity in giving people like Tantu Cardinal, who has been a big screen presence. You know, I think she was in Dance with Wolves, wasn't she? She's She's been around for ages. She's an incredibly accomplished actress barely gets a line. Mm. You know, so you you do have material there that you could have kind of developed, could have worked with to make it more of an Osage story. But I think there's there is merit in in telling the story that Scorsese does, because it is a very powerful story about the ways in which um establishments, both patriarchal and racial establishments, um, work to further their own power, work to uh, magnify their own power, work to subtly and not so subtly uh, undermine any threat to that power, work to keep that power for themselves and and consolidate and grow it and never, ever share it. And I think that is what's really the focus of this film. It's It's about the systems of power and the systems where even though history tells us that, you know, obviously we know about these murders, we know who did them, we mm. know who... Who was responsible because there is a court case at the end of the film and it does all come to light there. We know that, but what the film makes clear is that is just the tip of the iceberg and that there is so much more going on around that. And I think that is probably where the runtime comes from is to give himself the kind of texture and the kind of uh, scope to bring that stuff out to the surface. So, look, we gave this five stars. We, you know, it is an astonishing film. And certainly in my screen, which was packed, you could have heard a pin drop during the last hour of this film. Is it because everyone was asleep? It was not because everyone else was asleep. There was not a single snore. It's because it was genuinely gripping. Um, now, I will admit, I did look at my watch at an hour and a half and I looked again at two hours. But after that, I was back in it. I, I, I mean, I, I thematically, I think you're absolutely right. I think even not knowing, which I didn't because I've not read Grant's book and I've not, I didn't, I deliberately didn't look it up beforehand because I didn't want to know what happened. It's very obvious very early on exactly what's going on yeah. and almost, it's also obvious where it's going to end as and well. It's, and it's not a mystery. Like no. that's an Because I think there's a version of this film and almost the version yes. that the book tells is a bit of a mystery. Who done it, essentially, is the question of the books and that's not at all what Scorsese's done. So he has to uh, turned Tom White, who's the kind of, agent for the nascent FBI who mm. comes in Jesse to Plemons. look at these murders, who's played by Jesse Plemons. He's the hero of the book. It's very much his story. That was the role primarily. that DiCaprio was originally going to play. Exactly. And then he, they, they've switched it all around and DiCaprio then took the, the Burkhart mm. role. Um, 
if they'd switched it as far as I would like, it would have been a Molly as the lead role. Absolutely. And maybe that still isn't But it's possible. also the more interesting story. And her role, she's so compelling in this. Yeah, she really but is. But I think like, it's really it's interesting to see kind of like Scorsese's two guys, you know, seeing De Niro and DiCaprio sort of playing off each other and acting against each other. And, you know, they're both absolutely deplorable characters. Uh, but their scenes together are very compelling. But though I also think we're quite telling early on, there's a scene very early on, for their first scene together, mm. great scene where De Niro's character King essentially asks him what kind of women he likes. And he proceeds to list the kind of women he likes over two, two and a half minutes. And you're just like, okay, that's that's what this film is going to be. And don't get me wrong, it's a delightful scene. It's brilliantly sort of it revels in that time in the way that TV shows so often are able to do because of their extended runtime that you can spend time in the moment you can luxuriate in the runtime but there was a point in this where even though I was on a very nice reclining seat at the Odeon Lux watching it I was just like whew this is long like I did felt you, I did feel it you mainline five it. episodes of TV at a time I know like, you don't even get to do this I know anyway I, I, I do think it's magnificent after being obsessed with this film as you know for years about how the fuck is it costing that much I mostly see it on screen. I still think it could have been done for a lot less. Was it 200 million, was it? It was near enough. Yeah, yeah I think they, they knocked it down to some more like 160, 170 <laughs> in the end. But, I mean, I, I, I do know, I understand that they've spent the money. I understand that all this talent and everything and doesn't come cheap. I still think if you had to, you could have made this film for a lot less money. Yeah, by making it shorter. But I'm pleased that, hey, but I'm pleased that Scorsese gets the chance to make the films he wants to make, I guess. I just want everybody else to have that chance as well, or at least everybody else who's talented to get that chance. Five stars then for Martin Scorsese's non-MCU movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. I honestly think if he gave the MCU a chance, he would see, he would find some good... He would find some enjoyment. He would 100% stand for Ant-Man and the Wasp. Like me. Oh, Jesus. He would be a quantum maniac. Oh, God. There's no question about it. Can we please not reopen this debate? There is no debate. It's already been Ellen. too much. It's Die Hard, the Christmas much. movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, is a good film. Uh, who wants to go next with what? Helen, friend or foe? I'm on the fence, if I'm honest, about right. Foe. Yeah, Foe. so this is set in 2065 and uh, it's a sort of, you know, environmentally uh, destitute Earth. Um, the resources of the planet are dwindling. I wonder what and, that's like. Yeah, people are going into hmm. space to work on space stations and generally find a new, or forge really, a new home for humanity. So one night at a remote farmhouse where Hen, who's played by Saoirse Ronan, and Junior, played by Paul Mescal, live, uh, a mysterious stranger turns up. That's Terence, who's played by Aaron Pierre, who I raved about in Brothers a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. who's fantastic there and very, very good here. Um, and he basically says, look, Junior, you've been selected. Junior. Yes. It you is guys. you, Junior. You've been selected to go into space. You're, you're, you know, your skills are needed up there. Uh, Helen, I'm sorry, you're going to have to stay here because you don't have any skills, apparently. So, um, but don't worry, we're going to give you a robot double, essentially, of Junior to keep... Junior? You. Sorry. To look after you during his absence of two years. So that's wow. kind of the setup of the film. And so then it's a bit like, oh God, how do I feel about that? Do I want a robot double of my husband? What's that going to be like? Oh. I was Monty's robot double. And both of them going a bit kind of crazy at the prospect of this weird new life, really. Um, and lots of odd things happening as well. I, I thought these were great performances. It's a little weird to cast two Irish actors and have them both do American accents, but mm. whatever, I can live with it. Do they lapse at any point? Uh, there's the occasional, like, shadow. Do they mention the Blarney Stone? 
of a of a of a hint of green, you know. Yeah. But no, they don't lapse. They're good actors. They go Jesus at any point. Uh, no, they do say "Call me Magneto," call me but Magneto. apart from that, it's all <laughs> dead it's all giveaway. Pretty, pretty straight. Um, but I just there there are scenes in this that are very compelling. There are scenes in this that are very good, and then there are bits where you're just like, huh, what? Huh? I don't know. And I, I, I just kind of lost the run of it a bit at times. Why yeah. is it called Foe? And why is it all in capital letters? I don't think the film answers that. <laughs> so I'm just not going to either. Okay. But yeah. she's hen and she lives in a farmhouse, which is lovely. Yeah. So it's basically a prequel for Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget. <laughs> uh, look, I, you know, so like I say, really good, um, really, really good performances. I think a lot of people who are fans of one or more of these actors are going to go see it. I think people are going to discover Aaron Pierre through this if they didn't see Brothers. So I'm, I'm all for that. But I just... I didn't. I didn't know what it was meant to amount to in the end. It felt like a Black Mirror episode blown up mm. to uh, two times its natural length. So, all right, three stars then. Yeah, that's about three right. stars for foe, friend or foe, right in the middle. Three stars, neither, both. Who knows? Uh, three stars for that one. Okay, next up. Speaking of actors that people like, we have Jamie Fox and Tommy Lee Jones together at last in The Burial, which is on Amazon Prime. Sorry, it's not Amazon Prime, is it? It's Prime Video. Prime Video. Yeah. Just Prime Video, not Amazon Prime. Not Amazon Prime. Ignore the Beatles behind the curtain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> peddling away. Uh, Jimbo, yes. you want to take this one? Sure. This is a courtroom drama, the likes of which we don't really get that much these days. And I do love myself I a love courtroom drama. I love a drama. courtroom drama. So you must have loved the last hour then of Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, I loved it. It was brilliant. Were you asleep? Yeah. Okay. Um... This one stars Tommy Lee Jones as Jeremiah O'Keefe. It's a true story. Uh, he is a the owner of a funeral parlor, and he ends up in a uh, in, in a kind of a legal dispute with Bill Camp's Ray Lowen, whose Lowen Group is essentially trying to push him out of business. Lo now, and behold, lo and behold, indeed. And in an, in an attempt to stave this off, he enlists the help of Willie Gary, played by Jamie Foxx, who is a flamboyant uh, trial attorney who essentially does a kind of David and Goliath thing to try and bring down this big corporate funeral entity. Uh, and there is a lot of arguing across tables, shuffling of documents, grandstanding in the courtroom, objections sustained, all of that kind of stuff. It's great. Uh, Journey Smollett is in this as the opposition counsel. Uh, and I I must admit, so I liked it and I had a lot of fun with the with the courtroom side of it. Weirdly, I think the thing that, that hamstrung this for me a little bit was the fact that it's based on a true story. And I think, even though they take, I believe, because you, you reviewed this, Helen, I yeah. believe they took some liberties with the oh, facts, yeah. right? Love so, it. And they do do that. So I think they streamline the storytelling a little bit. But even so, I think it, it gets a little hamstrung by actual facts. But I, I, I do enjoy a good, well-executed courtroom. Mm. I think there's something just quite delightful about watching these kind of suited gladiators going at it in a courtroom. There are a couple of interesting courtroom decisions made here, in particular towards the end of the case, which rather surprised me. I don't really want to give it away here, but uh, and I'm not sure quite how I felt about those. But all in all, I really enjoyed Jamie Foxx. I thought he was great. Journey Smollett, who yeah. I very much enjoyed from Friday Night Lights, uh, was very good in this. Um, and yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. You gave this four stars. I was probably more in the three camp. Who directed I, it? I went back and forth a little bit. It was Maggie Betts. Yes, mm -hmm. it is Maggie Betts. I was more in the three camp, the three Bill camp, if you will. Uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I... I um... I did go back and forth a little bit between three and four, but the more I was, as I was writing about it, it was one of those ones that kind of grew in the writing because I was kind of thinking about 
the the issues that it gets into. It actually yes. weirdly, you know, for a case with a white plaintiff and a white defendant, actually gets really deep into questions about race and questions about, again, like Killers of the Flower Moon, preying on disadvantaged communities, or obviously in Flower Moon it's an advantaged community, <laughs> but preying on certain communities in order to make your way in the world and um, and the ins and outs and, and wrongs of that. I'm not even going to say rights. Um, yeah. So so that I thought was really interesting. The way that uh, Maggie Betts added that kind of texture and that kind of context to it, I thought was really, really strong. And the fact that she did make some of the swerves that she made in the way the case is presented, I thought was really interesting and mm-hmm. deserved it, deserved credit. So so yeah, it, it's a low four for me, but it is a four ultimately because I thought, and again, great, great performances. I mean, it's, it's kind of nice to see Tommy Lee Jones really stretch himself and play quite a cuddly person because yeah. as and far as I know he is not a cuddly person yeah that's true yeah, yeah he does so <laughs> yeah it's fun and I know what you mean like it's kind of it explores sort of corporate greed and how small businesses are essentially yeah. run into the ground and how people are, are taken advantage of at their most uh, kind of at their lowest ever really so you get to see a lot of this stuff, like whether it be in terms of courtroom procedurals on TV, every episode of The Good Wife, you know, mm. is great stuff. But as you pointed out in the review, you know, it's been a long time since we've had a good Grisham thread on screen, right? Yeah. And this mm. feels, what, the closest? It's not quite as out there and fantastical as The Grisham stuff. No, no, it's but, much more, obviously more grounded in reality. Yeah. But in the sense of having like this great cast of character actors yeah. and a lot of people arguing in rooms and, you know chances to kind of sit down and kind of debate the philosophy of what you're doing, which there's a mm. great scene, I think, between Fox and Smollett where they, they kind of do that and get into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed that kind of stuff. I really enjoyed the fact that she, that she didn't just take the sort of obvious approach to this case. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, I will forgive the, the departures from actual fact as yeah. a result. I miss things like, you know, the Pelican Brief, Rainmaker, yeah. The Chamber, all of that stuff. Well, I, I I read this week, I don't know whether you've read this actually, Helen, but the Grisham has written a sequel to The Firm. Yes, I, I saw it got a bad review somewhere, but I'm hoping I'm I'll sure read it, some I'm sure it will get many bad reviews, as most Grisham books do, but uh, it intrigued me and I wondered if, because it's been a while, hasn't it? Like the Grisham cinematic tap has been shut off <laughs> mm. uh, of late. Yeah, it has. And I wonder if this is maybe a way of trying to get a, a you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not accusing him of being cynical in any way, shape or form, the man in which in a God he doesn't have to work a day in his life if he doesn't want to. But perhaps this is a way of getting uh, a, a movie back on the big screen. That would I be thought, nice. I, I feel like that's a bigger you know, sort of yeah. structural question for Hollywood, isn't it? The lack of those kind of yeah. mid-budget, star-led, character-actor-filled films. I mean, this one, you know, I think had a week in cinemas and then has basically gone to prime yes. video. So, you know, maybe there isn't the the cinema environment for those films, but I, I love wish there was. Me a courtroom I love drama. Oh. Uh, it's a true, even though it's not a courtroom drama, it's a truth universally acknowledged yeah. that I cannot pass the firm <laughs> without watching it. That's um, right. Or indeed, Runaway Jury. Uh, which are, you know, remember we were talking a couple of weeks ago about our our you know sort of pleasure movies. Yeah, Runaway Jury is one I completely forgot forgot to mention. Uh, I watched that film uh, once a year. It's tremendous. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but yes, this I I'm I liked it a lot. I watched it on the plane on the way back from New York. I was in New York at the weekend. As the director intended. As the director intended, and uh, I had a good time with it. I thought the cast was excellent. Jamie Fox, very very good. Tommy Lee Jones, very very good. Alan Ruck. But I actually thought the most interesting character in the piece was Mamadou Athi, who plays a lawyer who has, who brings the case to Willie Gary, who brings the notion of going to Willie Gary to Tommy Lee Jones in the first mm. place. Mm. And then at several points in the narrative, kind of is that character in a legal thriller who kind of hits upon the thing that unlocks <laughs> yeah. the key yeah. to victory. Yeah. And I get the why you would go with Willie Gary because he is a very 
eye-catching protagonist and I guess in real life was the person who actually did. Oh yeah, he was, yeah. yeah. And, know, and he, is, yeah. He's, he's, and he is, he's yeah. still alive, yeah. Yeah, very much alive. And you know, it's one of those movies that at the end shows you what the real Willie Gary and what the real um, Jerry looked like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's fine, it's all good, but I just kept watching Mamadou Athi, who's a really, really good actor, and going, I want to see more about that guy. Mm-hmm. I want to, he's the most interesting character in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, ticks all the courtroom drama boxes for me. Uh, I was very, very happy watching it. It's a thoroughly pleasurable movie, and I'm in the 3-4 camp. But also fair play to them for making a compelling two-hour film out of contract law, which is not in itself the most exciting Helen side must of have law. been it's in the, hog heaven. Well, I mean, it was basically I, porn for Helen. But, uh. I hated contract law. <laughs> really? I hated it. I didn't hate it as much as trusts. Trusts can absolutely go fuck itself, but contract is not. <laughs> yeah. Objection anyway. sustained. Overruled. So, yeah, I give it four. Yeah, oh. it was a it was a tense, taut thriller. Oh, oh. hey, legal legal gags. There we go. Uh, all right, real quick, because yeah. i got to run. Uh, we should talk about the Pigeon Tunnel, but yeah. only I have seen the Pigeon Tunnel. I'm sorry, I started it, but I haven't finished. I will. All right, Mastermind. Uh, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, this is really good. If you're an Errol Morris fan, you should watch this because it is very much in the Errol Morris style uh, as is you have a uh, an interview delivered straight to camera. In this case, David Cornwell talking about his fascinating life. And there are also reconstructions in the Errol Morris style of certain key moments in his life. It's only 90 minutes long. If you are a Le Carre fan, uh, as you know from last week's uh, listener question, we are a Le Carry On fan. Hey. Uh, thank you. Uh, then you should absolutely check this out. If you're an Errol Morris fan, you should check this out. And if you're both, then praise Jeebus, this is the movie for you. And we gave this four stars, and quite rightly, and I'm sure we also gave four stars to Trolls Band Together, Hell's Bells. <laughs> yeah, so this one reveals at the beginning of the film that Branch, Justin Timberlake's character from the two previous Trolls films, I'm sure we're all familiar with Branch, is dead was the youngest member <gasps> of a boy band group of brothers called Brozone. <laughs> yes. And they broke up just before achieving the perfect family harmony, something that apparently can shatter diamond. I wonder if that will come in handy later. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, years later, uh, Branch's older brother turns up to say our younger, our middle brother... Um, the, the sensitive one has been kidnapped and we have to go and rescue him because wouldn't you know it, he's being held in a diamond prison. If only we knew something that could shatter diamond, guys. I can't think of anything. I, I Diamonds I are can't forever, think. Helen. Yeah, so they have to basically go off and find um, the other members of Barozone to reunite to create the perfect family harmony and rescue Floyd, who is the sensitive one of the group. He's voiced by Troy Sivan um, from the terrible clutches of Velvet and Veneer voiced by Amy Schumer and Andrew Rennells. Look, it's mad. Um, visually, it's really out there even for a Trolls film. It, you know, it's got all the texture and sort of t- and feltiness of the Trolls themselves and the sort of glitterness. Um, but then it has the like Velvet and Veneer look like almost like balloon animal people. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. It's very strange. It goes full 60s psychedelia at one point. Mm-hmm. My problem with it is that the story is so cliched and boring. Uh, by comparison to what everything that's going on with the visuals. And they have this incredibly starry voice cast and they add in like D- David Diggs and people as others of the brothers this time. And they're still trying to fit in all of the voice cast they've already had from two previous films. And it's just like, guys, like, 
chill out. Just calm down a little bit and don't bring everybody back for every single film. Maybe. Just a suggestion. Just a suggestion. So um, so I find that a bit exhausting, to be honest. And um, I don't know. I, I went back and forth on this one, but I went two stars in the end because I just, I don't know who I'd recommend it you to. You were trolling. I, maybe I was, but uh, I, I, I just... Maybe I wasn't highly sugared enough. You know, maybe I would have felt different if I had a pack of Haribo in me. I don't know. Or crack cocaine. Or crack cocaine. <laughs> but I, I just felt it was a bit much and not enough at the same time. So you think Helen, these trolls should be banned together? Oh boy, yes. Um, I will also say that, I'll be honest, I was a tiny bit disappointed, even though the, the members of Brozone are voiced by very, very good actors and yes. who can all sing and everything as well. Yes. NSYNC are literally in this movie. Would you not cast the other members of NSYNC as Justin Timberlake's character's former boy band? Like, I think that would be funnier, even if they're not as good actors, personally. Or singers. They can say, oh, come on. They can oh, say, come on. oh, come on. Come on. Oh, come on. Anyway, I so I was just a bit frustrated by the whole thing. Um, but it's very colourful. And look, if you're desperate to get rid of the kids for a couple of hours on the over the half-term break, mm. then this is probably the one for you. Jesus Christ. I'm going to watch this film, aren't I? You are. Right, that is pretty much it for the refuse section, which means we just have one guest left. Garth Davis talking about foe to Neil Bat. Do please enjoy. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. What do you feel this film teaches people about being human? Well, I think it's telling people to be human. Mm. <laughs> I think we've lost, yeah, what is real, what isn't real. I feel like we're, we're, it, it looks at identity and, and how we lose connection to who we really are. And yeah. um, I think Hen... That's what Hen is fighting for in the story. You know, she's very aware and understands that time is precious, and that um, there is only one. There's only one life, you know, so live it to the fullest. And um, and I guess uh, that's the tragedy of the story because you know this couple can be very happy together, um, but over time he's just taken her for granted and um, and and is unwilling to change. So I guess the film looks at the the devastation that stasis can cause. And um, and there's something about the relationship that, that echoes the greater metaphor with the planet. And um, what sort of drew you to adapting this particular book? Well, when I was reading the book, it was just like so visual. It was like a great Hitchcock, you know, the strange arriving in the night. I was like so into mm. it visually. And then it took this turn um, and a really surprising turn. And I just started to zero in on this marriage and could see there was something not right here and um so i guess and then it kind of unraveled to be this i mean a rabbit hole that you couldn't believe you went down so i mean i just fell in love with the heart and soul of the story and the way and and the way we could get into that story it was such a refreshing way to explore a relationship the, the marriage is quite an intense one and i suppose living on a farm just those two it makes it even more intense as it is um did were you ever sort of attempted to move the film from the isolated farm to somewhere else, or did you feel that was integral to to the storytelling? Oh, never, never thought of moving it. Um, we love that, and um, and just curious about people that live on farms, live in remote areas, and um, and in a way, just the whole point is that we're just creating that claustrophobic nature and just putting the focus on humanity and mm. on relationship, almost putting that under the microscope. Um, and not trying to get caught up with all this other context. So just really almost like boiling it down to what matters. Um, and, yeah. and that's very helpful. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, really good in terms of like the, the nature of, of just nature itself. 
having it on a farm, uh, you can kind of focus in on that because there's a lot of sci-fi films. You'd have a lot more, I suppose, sci-fi to those films, whereas this is sort of a almost a celebration of nature. Uh, I suppose that was quite important as well to, to, to the plot. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, the farm was also, was two things. Terence wanted a very remote place to test his design. Yeah. So that was important to the story. Um, but also the farm also represents what Junior's holding on to, you know, and, and so the nostalgia of the house was very important and, and almost like hens the next woman in the cycle of that patriarch. And, um, yeah. and um, so the house needed to feel like it was, you know, when you're just desperately holding on to memories and holding on to things when there's no point anymore, the farm doesn't work. And, and I yeah. guess that was so symbolic of the relationship. And then, um, and, and I guess bringing that into a contemporary context, you know, the, with the feeling of um, the planet uh, in distress um, with AI kind of coming in, we, we kind of got all these forces coming in on us. And, and I guess what's Hen, Hen saying to us is wake up. We've got yeah. to wake up. We can't just sleepwalk into this future because we're going to lose everything if we do. Could you talk about like the casting of the three leads and how that uh, came about? The whole time we were writing, the whole time we were kind of in, in early development, I, I just had Hen. I could just feel Hen the whole time, you know, and, and I was definitely feeling somebody that had, you know, under, under all of her, um, under, under all of the challenges that she has, there's a, there's a very curious uh, human being there, someone that has this, uh, that emanates this gorgeous spirit and this light who has a empathic nature, uh, connection to nature. So I definitely saw this bright light kind of coming through and, and really wanted to find that in, in an actress that could play her. Yeah. There's not many people that have that. And then Saoirse, Saoirse obviously, um, yeah, doesn't matter who she plays, her, her beautiful light kind of comes through, her personality comes through everything she does. Yeah. So that was a no-brainer and um, she really connected to the material. And um, once we got her, I, I moved on to, um, I met Paul Mescal not because he was Irish as well, that was just um, a serendipity thing, but he was just so passionate about playing the multiple characters he had to play. And uh, he, he was just so compelling. And, I, and just hanging out with him, he just felt like Junior. He had both sides. He had the alpha kind of qualities, and then he had that, those feminine sides. He was quite playful as well, um, quite old-fashioned as well. And it was all these beautiful qualities. And I just thought, wow, these two are going to be amazing together. So that's how they came together. Terence was the hardest character um, right. because, you know, the antagonist you um, can really, it can just become a trope and um, very expected. And we didn't want that. We really wanted to find, a f make his character as interesting as possible. So um, Aaron Pierre, I met Aaron Pierre and um, he had such a love of Terence and really somehow managed to find choices to make everything he did feel believable and also yeah. like really want to do this, you know? Um, so I, I thought his, his performance was really quite, quite amazing as well. Yeah. Aaron is, is he's, he seems quite um, almost subtle in a way in his performance, but there are all these things that he says that are sort of like almost pushing the buttons in a way. Um, oh, yeah, 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 was, yeah. was there like a difference in the, how you directed all three actors or was there? Yeah. Yeah. They, they all had very different tasks. So I guess there's a lot of secret rivers that run in the scenes. You know, mm. the, the movie you think you're watching and there's actually what's really happening. So 
all the secret rivers had to be rehearsed and understood so they could flow. Um, people that didn't know anything, they just we just kept them in denial. Um, but I guess the the finding the music of those performances, like how much do you reveal, how little do you reveal, um, mm. that was really fun in the rehearsals. Just to feel feel that, just dip the toes in and get the feeling of that was really important. And as you say, Terence's. Um, he, he's kind of he feels threatening, but then he's so charming, mm, and yeah. you're just constantly disorientated by him, and um, never feeling safe, never feeling on safe ground. And I think that's what was really exciting about his his take. I mean, ultimately, it's about two people and their marriage. Um, how did you make sure you were focusing on uh, those two, whilst making sure you were including the sci-fi element and make sure sort of the main um, main part of the film was was uh, the two leads. If you actually look at all the scenes, nearly every scene is about their relationship. Every single scene. So even when you're in Junior's point of view, he may be getting um, interrogated by Terence, and it's always about Hen and the relationship. Or um, so in a way, it's just this. Doesn't matter where we are. It's it's all used to kind of explore the relationship. But the beautiful thing about the sci-fi elements is mm. that it it just means you can look at that relationship from angles you ordinarily couldn't. And um, mm. and that's what I loved about the book was that this is such a refreshing way to explore a marriage story and um so i guess yeah all those devices up against the human story uh, kind of trigger something within you and the and the artificial intelligence aspect like for instance this idea of sentience and when you do create something that's sentient in fact there's a similarity to like when we were born how there's this wonder for everything that exists around you when you're a child like everything is fresh and alive and you see the beauty yeah. in everything as does artificial intelligence but then over time we we don't see things anymore we lose the wonder and we lose the curiosity so there's some great mirrors of the relationship against um against against the way that we stop seeing the world in a curious way yeah um you talked about ai just then and Obviously, that's become a lot more prominent the last few years. Uh, is that something that drew to this story, or was that is that just a happy coincidence? Not really happy coincidence, but coincidence. No, no. I mean, uh, I think when Ian wrote the book, it was a long time ago, so AI wasn't even in the news, and it wasn't yeah. until we were editing that all this AI stuff started coming up. So we just kind of almost slid into the zeitgeist. It wasn't something that was premeditated. Yeah. I guess what fascinated me about AI is. Um, that this version was particularly human. And um, mm. often you see AIs with bits of robotic parts on them and that, that doesn't really interest me so much. Um, where this was really going beyond that and, um, and, and really looking at, um, looking at how technology comes into our lives and, um, yeah. and, and our responsibility around bringing sentient beings, creating something as sentient is, 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 a, is a minefield. For the most part, it's all shot in one location. It's like the house. Uh, what are the challenges of shooting sort of one location as opposed to multiple locations? Um, what sort of came up when you were filming primarily in the house? I guess I was excited about working in one space. I know that sounds strange. Um, I didn't underestimate it. Um, I knew that we had to get the floor plan just right, all the spaces mm. just right. Um, we even mapped out some early floor plans and I would literally go through the whole movie um, just in my mind, just go to scene one and I'd just stand there and imagine it. Um, literally just to make sure that 
the 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 set was not going to you know the set was going to bring to life all of those scenes um, so that was super important um, building it on location was also important because it just meant you had this direct relationship to the outside just felt very grounded and believable and also you f yeah. even though you're in a room with the sound design you feel you feel the fields out the window you feel the space around you you feel that isolation so i don't know even though it's small it feels big um are you quite a big sci-fi fan yes i i i mean i grew up yeah i think the first um first sci-fi i ever saw was alien when i was a really young kid i probably shouldn't have seen it at that age my dad just bought a Actually, I think it was a beta cam machine. It just came out and it came, the machine came with Alien. And uh, yeah, I put that on and that changed my life. So I grew up with all the good stuff. Um, so I guess, yeah, there's definitely references, I guess, tonally to the 70s and uh, 80s in, in, in this, I guess. Just that kind of yeah, char yeah. character driven, grounded, in camera kind of sci fi. Mm, yeah, yeah, you can definitely see. Uh, references of previous sci-fi films in this um like certainly blade runner being one of the oh it's masterpiece. The, the, yep. the biggest one yeah i mean just one of the greatest films of all time um and uh, in terms of your sort of what you've worked on so you've worked on this lion mary magdalene uh what sort of draws you to sort of i suppose the kind of hard-hitting films in different ways what makes you go for these sorts of uh, plots and stories i guess all of them are about love Mm. Um, and uh, there's nothing more important than love, really, <laughs> in in any <laughs> aspect. I mean, yeah. love love is consciousness. Love is the universe. Love yeah. love has no boundaries. So I guess I'm fascinated by that. Um, and just I guess the challenges in being human. Uh, each of those mm. stories have love in them, but um, look at what it is to be human, and 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 how to kind of stay truthful to who you are under all of these extraordinary circumstances. Would you ever accept a robot replacement for yourself? No. No. <laughs> Under no, no circumstance. I, I don't. I don't think so. No. That would, be, that would be weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think uh, you'd be worried about what you're doing the whole time. <laughs> well, a lot of people. A lot of people joke. They go, oh, "I'd love to have a fake husband or a fake wife," which is fine. But no one actually thinks mm -hmm. about what it would be like for that thing. You know. And um, yeah. And. Um, Everyone's just thinking about themselves and how they can use artificial intelligence. But, you know, when are we going to start thinking about how it feels? Yeah. That's the ethical line that we're kind of starting to enter as a society. There you go. That was Neil Bant talking to Garth Davis, director of Foe. Uh, anyway, that is definitely it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. Well, we'll be joined by, again, a whole bunch of people because I've overbooked. But I know for sure that one of those people is Eddie Izzard, star of Dr. Jekyll, The Return of Hammer to the big screen after an absence of a few years. Uh, and there'll be other people as well. All right, I'm going to a, um, a seminar talking about podcasts and I need to be there at 20 past three. It is currently five past three and it takes half an hour to get there. What do you think my chances are? Super great. Super great. It is goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara, goodbye. Bye, I'm trying to be quick. James bye. Dyer, bye, bye, bye. 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 And it's goodbye bye. from me. I'm off to come up with a funny thing. I'll probably dub something in later on. <laughs> and then put some laughter in from us. Put some, ha, 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 ha. Everyone laughs. Everyone, we're all friends. <laughs> that was a funny ha, ha. joke. We hang out together. We're such good friends in real life. <laughs> thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for listening. I just want to nip any rumours in the bud. <laughs> What the you see that thing on the subreddit about you you guys like what if you you know came together as a couple? What would your babies I be called? No. 
Oh, I, so I, I do you remember know, I want to nip yes. any of those. Yeah, we're all friends in real life, but we but don't. Not, not that not, good friends. We're not that good friends. No. We're not genital friends. We're not. No. Oh. <laughs> we're general friends, not gen- <laughs> genital friends. I feel like I know now why you're single. It's like, it's using the phrase genital friends. <laughs> Maybe you and me can be together till the very end. Would you like to be alone with me as my one and only genital friend? Genital friend. Genital. I've got to go. Bye.